the Battle of Ramadi had just happened in Iraq. And there was a BBC article that, like, the first paragraph is like, we sit there staring across the compound, not moving, because our interpreter tells us there's 1,500 explosive devices around this compound. And, like, that, that's the general consensus. Like, you get there and all the veterans are like, oh, yeah, ISIS mines everything. And so, like, she's like, kick, kick in the door. And I'm like, oh, God damn it, Sema. Of course they mined the door. <laughs> And so just like the very visual image flash in my head, like I'm going to kick open the door and my leg's going to blow off and I'm going to die. And in that moment, I was completely okay with that. That like, that was like my moment where it was literally just a split second. And it's like, this is what I came here to do. Um, the, the time to um, whoop out was at the airport in the United States. This is what I came here to do. Um, this is what I want to do. And I was completely at peace, kicked open that door, fully expecting to die, and they didn't mind that door. These are some songs for the revolution. listening to Hammer and Pistol, a project about firearms and other tools of defense for the working class. My name is Alejandro Cienfuegos. This is the first episode of this podcast that looks at the real-world experience of someone taking up arms in defense of a revolution. I don't mean revolution in some sort of watered-down or rhetorical sense of the word. I mean someone got on a plane, traveled to an active war zone, and took up arms in support of the ongoing revolutionary project of a society halfway around the world. That someone is Freeman Stevenson. He was a journalist who volunteered to fight with the Kurdish People's Protection Unit, or YPG, in a region called the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria. If you can't recall ever hearing of this region before, well, I'm going to bet that you actually have heard of it by its other name. Rojava. Freeman arrived in Iraqi Kurdistan in late 2015. He made his way into Syria and linked up with the Kurdish forces to begin training and indoctrination into the YPG. After many months of combat across the deserts and plains of Syria, including numerous close encounters with death and more than a few scars, Freeman eventually made his way home in October of the following year. That is all I am going to say for now. I do not want to spoil the story. Besides, I think Freeman is a great storyteller. I spent most of the conversation just listening intently as he told me of his journey in socialist revolutionary internationalism. Now, I want to be really clear. 
This episode is not intended to reduce the complexities of the history Kurdish struggle for liberation down to the 10-month combat tour of a white guy from Utah. There is already some great journalism that covers these struggles by more competent investigators and storytellers. The goal of this episode is simply to explore the story of somebody who witnessed firsthand what it means to be an internationalist and take up arms in defense against oppression and annihilation in the face of fascism. I am really excited to present you this conversation. The full conversation went on for about four hours, and despite my best efforts at editing and cutting the recording, I still had to break the conversation into two rather long parts. Please forgive all of the various ways in which I will mispronounce the names of places in Arabic and Kurmanji, and I'm sure some other languages as well. You will also have to forgive the sound quality in a few parts of the episode. The app that I used to record our conversation seemed to glitch quite a bit during our talk, and uh, I have learned my lesson, and I have actually invested in some better quality recording software. So hopefully that means the days of iffy sound quality are soon coming to an end. Throughout the episode, you will hear me interject with a few clarifications and some additional context whenever the audio cuts or if I need to correct something or add to something that I said. Finally, since this episode is so long, I will put some intermissions throughout so you can pause it and then come back to it later. I hope you enjoy. Freeman, you are joining us uh, tonight to talk about your experience in Rojava, and um, let's jump right into it. So what was your, I guess, experience of like learning about the the Kurdish movement for their liberation and mm-hmm. like, like, how did you hear about it and what motivated, what motivated you to get over yeah. there and, and join their fight? Yeah, um, surprisingly easy. It was all Facebook. <laughs> um, um, I was a was a journalist. I started off my professional life as a journalist, um, uh, m- mostly just doing like local journalism. But from time to time, I'd get to freelance and write about other things. And um, I mean, so I'd always always paid attention to the Middle East. Um, you know, I'm a kid who grew up, you know, in the 21st century, so kind of hard, kind of hard to ignore it. Um, Mm -hmm. my my dad was a desert storm vet, um, as much as a desert storm vet means anything. He sat around and got dusty for three months. Um, and so like, I'd always had like that interest in the region, obviously paid attention to it. And, um, the, the Arab spring was kind of like a big thing that grabbed my attention when that first kicked off. And um, so I just I just followed that um, both like semi professionally when it came to like writing about like the refugee crisis and stuff, um, but also just out of it's I enjoyed like watching the struggle of various groups of people try to fight for greater freedoms or fight for a jihadist state, you know, as as it happens, um, and so that's. That's where I guess that general thing is where I I learned about um, just general Kurdish issues. I mean, again, like I'd known that like I knew the Kurds were a thing before the Arab Spring. I knew enough about the Middle East. Like, oh yeah, but there there's an ethnic group called the Kurds. They make up a third of Iraq. Um, 
yada yada. And as as a leftist, I vaguely knew that the uh, the PKK was a you know leftist guerrilla group, and so I kind of knew that information to start off with. And as the Syrian civil war developed, um, I, I paid loose enough attention to the Kurdish issue in Syria to know that they were a thing. Uh, my primary focus was, of course, on the uh, FSA, Free Syrian Army, versus um, Assad, and the descent of the FSA into jihadism. Um, like I, I knew about the Islamic State probably about nine months before Mosul, which is nine months longer than most people. Um, right. Still, still taken aback when they, you know, conquered half of Iraq in a day, as I think they were themselves. Um, but I, I, so I knew that the Kurds were doing their own thing. I knew they were playing this kind of third party in the Syrian civil war, but I, I hadn't looked too much into, like, into the internal politics of that. Um, like, I don't even think I overtly knew how connected they were to the uh, PKK and the KCK or PJK um, organization, which is kind of the umbrella organization for all the um, various groups that operate under the um, OPOist is what it's some people call it, but that's kind of silly to me. So just like democratic confederalism ideology. Um. And then, then yeah, then ISIS happened um, and became the thing they became. And then Kobani happened in October of 2014. And uh, that actually, um, people people always say, like, oh, you never see stuff on the news. Uh, the Battle of Kobani did make it on the news. Uh, it was the first time the U.S. started airstrikes within Syria against the Islamic State. And the media kind of hyper-focused on it for a couple months. And so that's when I'm like, wait a second. These guys seem a lot cooler than I've been giving them credit for. Um, and so that's when I actually did a deep dive into, okay, what, what have the Kurds been doing in Syria? I know they've been doing something, but what is that something? Um, and turns out it's democratic confederalism. It's a left-wing, anarcho-socialist, anarcho-libertarian um, project in the region. And, you know, really it's like, oh, wait a second. I actually agree with like all of the things they stand for. Um, and so, yeah, so October of 20, uh, October of 2014. So when I fully became cognizant of really the Kurdish struggle and um, actually did a deep dive into it beyond my like surface level understanding I had before. And that just kind of quickly blossomed and it, it did. It did help that it coincided with ISIS, who I, I really hated. <laughs> they uh, they kept blowing up all the old stuff, and um, I'm now an archaeologist, so that should highlight the fact that I, I kind of always liked the old stuff. Uh-huh. And um, like, yeah, I mean, not not to like whitewash, you know, genocide of living people like ISIS did, but there's just like something inherently worse to me uh, that takes it to a new level when like you also not only try to kill people, but erase like any evidence that they existed in the region. So that like just made me deeply angry about ISIS. But, and I'll say this here, like I wanted to fight ISIS, but I wasn't going to just go fight ISIS. Like I didn't, I didn't join um, the Peshmerga to fight ISIS. I didn't join any of the various Iraqi PMU militias to fight ISIS. I didn't join Assad to fight ISIS. I didn't join Jabhat al-Nusra to fight ISIS. 
because like just fighting ISIS wasn't particularly important to me. Um, but learning about the Rojavan revolution and what they were trying to achieve in the region kind of just struck a chord with me. And that, that motivated me more than like just fighting ISIS because I mean, okay, you can fight jihadists all you want. I mean, we, ISIS didn't come about in like the mid nineties when the world didn't really know anything about the Middle East. No, it came about after 14 years of the global war on terror. And all that resulted in was a caliphate. Like, so clearly not the most effective way to go about it is just like dropping bombs. You have to actually be trying to fundamentally change the cause of it. And to me, to my eyes then and to my eyes now, the Rojava Revolution is the only movement in the entire region even remotely attempting to address um, some deep-seated issues in the region, um, both on a government level and just a cultural level that has led to this breeding ground of despotism or radicalism. And um, so, yeah, that that motivated me a lot. And I think, I want to say it was probably February of 2015 when I first saw a news article. It was a news piece by NBC, I believe, where they interviewed a uh, American who was over fighting with the YPG. And uh, it was not Jordan Matson. Jordan Matson is who people usually think about was the first guy. He was some random guy from Kentucky. And uh, I th- like the, he's like, yeah, I came here and joined. And the moment I knew that like going over there and joining the YPG was an option, it's like, okay, I'm going to go join the YPG. And um, so, yeah, back in, back in my day, that was accomplished by just reaching out over Facebook. Um, they had set up a Facebook page called the Lions of Rojava at the time, and um, you, you literally just sent them a Facebook message. They're like, hey, can I come fight ISIS? And they're like, hell yeah, you can come fight ISIS. And they uh, had this copy-pasta, pa- copy copy-pasta, that they would throw out. is like, this is a real hardcore deal. Don't be pulling our chains, yada, yada. If you're serious, you need to buy this equipment. Reach out to us at this email address. Buy a ticket to Iraqi Kurdistan. And we'll meet you on the ground there if you're actually serious about it. Um, so yeah, that took me took me until December of 2015 to have squared squared my life away and worked enough random jobs to get the money. Um, and yeah, bought, bought my ticket and flew to Iraqi Kurdistan. And I mean, once once you make the commitment of showing up, you're you're good. Like you've you've done enough. They're like, okay, we believe you now. So they're gonna you get integrated into the pipeline and um off you go. And uh yeah, I mean like rambling a bit, but it's just like it really was a large part of like the motivation to do this is um I've I've considered myself a communist since I was like eight years old. Was watching Hunt for the Red October turn to my dad and be like, why do we hate the communists so much? And he's like, they took money from the rich people and gave it to the poor by force. You know, just like this knee-jerk conservative reaction. Um, And eight-year-old me, who was like being raised to be vaguely religious and like reading portions of the Bible where Jesus is flipping tables on bakers, is like, that sounds rad as fuck. We should all be communists. 
And um, I have just stuck to that ever since. <laughs> and, um, and so obviously, you know, have a bit of the Spanish Civil War International Brigade fetishism growing up as a kid, as I think most leftists will at one point in time. And basically, all of a sudden, Year of Our Lord 2015, there is a honest-to-God leftist revolution fighting against a theocratic Dark Age militia, and they're asking for help. And they are making it incredibly easy to join them in their struggle and participate. And, I mean, I don't care what flavor of leftist you are. I only care if, like, internationalism is a central tenet. And I think that's something the left has generally lost a lot today, is that true sense of internationalism. Um, I guess we've lost it for a while, but it did, like, I'm, I'm in Utah. I was growing up in Utah, especially before Bernie Sanders, especially before 2016. Um, in 2015, the only remote leftist organizing there was for me to do in the state of Utah was a weird Facebook page with, like, 79 likes and posted a meme every, like, six months or so. And that was it. And so I basically, like, didn't want to be the forever coffee shop revolutionary and just, like, deeply regret not taking this opportunity when I had the chance. Um, so I did. And it wasn't, wasn't really that big of, a, uh, big of a jump for me, personally, I don't think. Like, it, like well, again, once I knew that it was an option, I knew I was going to do it. That sounds like uh, quite a journey. Um, just, just getting to that point and, and making that decision to head over there. Um, that's really interesting. You, you mentioned kind of the, how maybe there was not a lot of publicity up until, uh, Kobani, is it Kobane or Kobani? How do you say that? Um, yeah, it's a uh, Koban. And then the, the I at the end is pronounced like an E. In English, okay. So Kobani. Okay. Kobani. Oh, so it's similar to like in, in, uh, Persian, uh, Kurdish is, is close to Persian languages, isn't it? Yes, um, it, it is an Indo-European language, um, and it is a the, the Kurds are a Iranian ethnic group, um, um, ethnically, and so yeah, um, I actually can hear Farsi, and I don't understand Farsi per se, but I can pick up enough root words and just oh. the general flow of conversation. I'm like, I think I know what's going on here. Oh, okay, yeah, um, so my. Yeah, yeah my my husband's Persian, so I I hear Kurdish, and I'm like, that kind of sounds like Farsi from what I've heard yeah. of it, but I, you know, I don't necessarily recognize anything. But uh, yeah, I actually um we sold my wife's car um, last year to a to a Persian guy, and him and his son were talking about trying to lower the price on me in Farsi, and I understood enough to be like, mm, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. I, I know what you're saying, mostly. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's really interesting that um, from the start of the Syrian civil war, which if, if I remember correctly, kicked off in like late 2011, um, you know, the, the kind of the end of the Arab Spring. <laughs> and then by 2012, uh, the conflict was in full swing. I, yeah. I was in college at the time, and I remember meeting someone who had escaped from Damascus and was uh, he would talk about his. Uh, the the Syrian politics in like a religious studies class. It was the most random thing. Mm -hmm. That was the extent of my exposure to it. 
And I, I did not learn about the Kurds until I was sitting in the U.S. Army Field Artillery School uh, for the basic officer leadership course back in 2014. And uh, yeah, I was I was there in November, December. And, and so we're learning about, you know, the American field artillery and the fire support and close air support, which the Kurds had a lot of uh, U.S. air support. So it was the uh, the relevant example for us. And that, that was kind of my initial exposure to it. And then uh, come 2015, I was in East Africa for a deployment and I was I was closely following the news of what was going on in uh, Rojava. Uh, Rojava. I, I always mix up that pronunciation. And um, uh, it's, it's acceptable. As long as it's not Rojava, that's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not going to say that I, I haven't pronounced it like that before. So I know. It was, I think it was like a knee jerk reaction amongst the left. Like, no, it's a, it's a foreign language. It must be accented differently. It's like, no, it's, it's, it's a Latin alphabet. It's, yeah. generally read like it's pronounced <laughs> sure sure yeah the the spanish speaker in me maybe a little bit <laughs> was like oh this is a rojava i think but uh, i mean my experience is like it's always just been like absurdly white liberals and leftists be like no it's rojava it's like oh, no, it's not. <laughs> like they would t- like i remember getting an argument with someone over facebook while i was in rojava oh, wow. <laughs> so like, no, it's, it's like no no Trust me, trust me, it's Rojava. It's like, mm. <laughs> allow me to turn to my my Kurdish friend right next to me in on the battlefield of <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's hilarious, and uh, that's kind of par for the course for the uh, the white American left, especially. Yeah, it's it's just like yeah, I, like it's somewhat understandable. I think I get like where it comes from, but it is like I don't know. It's it's year of our Lord twenty twenty one, people. It's Rojava or, you know, like Rojava, long as you don't have to pronounce it Rojava. <laughs> so when you first arrived in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, and, and um, that's controlled by the Peshmerga, isn't it? Or the, uh, you know, I forget all of my different um, Kurdish parties, Kurdish groups. I know that yeah. there are Iraqi Kurds in control of uh, near Erbil. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, what is it? The the Tehrani family and another family are like the big power brokers there, and, and so, it's, it's not a remotely leftist project in that part of the world. Not a all right. So alphabet soup time. Everyone, okay. bust bust out your notepads. Take your notes. We're doing the quickest as we can. That's still too long. Overview of like inter Kurdish politics in this war. So yeah, I flew into a city called Soleimania. Um, that is in northern Iraq, pretty close to the Iranian border. And um, the reason I flew into Soleimania instead of Erbil, like you mentioned, is in Iraqi Kurdistan. Like you can you can say Iraqi Kurdistan, and there is especially amongst Kurds and Kurdish diaspora, they are very proud of the idea of you know Iraqi Kurdistan or just Kurdistan. They, you will never hear someone in Iraqi Kurdistan call it Iraqi Kurdistan. It's just Kurdistan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the, the, the reality is that they, it, it's not a thing like that. You have two tribal groups who have split the Kurdish territory in Iraq into two parts. Um, and that's not including areas that the PKK has, um, dominant control over. Um, and so the, the Kurdish regional government, the KRG, 
is the overall governing body of EKRG, the Kurdish Regional Government, uh, which is the official name for the autonomous region in northern Iraq. Um, but that is split in in real in all reality. That is split into two separate governments. Um, on the Barzani family, you have the KDP. Um, which let me just double check what that stands for. It's British Democratic Party, I believe. Yeah, British Democratic Party. Ah, nailed it. So awesome. So they they control um, Erbil, the uh, Hook. Uh, basically, and, and the border with Rojava, um, much to our chagrin. Um, and then you have the uh, Talbani family, um, and they are the leaders of the PUK, um, and uh, PUK is Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, and they control Solomania. And um, both, both Talbanis and Barzanis were uh, leading figures in the decades-long Iraqi-Kurdish uh, independence struggle. And uh, but once, once that was rough, once they achieved rough autonomy um, after uh, Desert Storm in '91, uh, the U.S. enforcing a fly zone that basically allowed them to have physical autonomy, um, they, they promptly had a civil war, as as one does. Um, that lasted until 1996 and ended with the uh, KDP, Barzani, inviting the Iraqi army to come back into Kurdistan to fight the PUK and the PKK, um, who were allies in this war. Um, and so that, that's basically solidified um, the Barzanis as the official um, controllers of the KRG. But in reality, like I said on the ground, like it's it's two separate governments. It's two separate countries. They have their own. The the Peshmerga is not a unified military unit. There are supposedly on paper somewhere two battalions of Peshmerga that are com- directly controlled by the KRG. I don't think those exist. In reality, the Peshmerga is just you have KDP Peshmerga, uh, PUK Peshmerga, and then a mattering of other smaller political parties that have aligned with either side. Um, okay. And okay. yeah, and the and the PUK is broadly sympathetic to Rojava and just the. the PJK, KCK, um, which is uh, PKK is Kurdish or Kurdistan Workers Party. KJK stands for Kurdistan Communities Union. There you go. Um, and so that's why I flew into Soleimania because you could, if I had walked off the plane in Erbil, chances are I would have been fine. But on the off chance that whoever work was working airport security that day really didn't like the PUK or the uh, Rojava or the PKK. They they could have thrown an issue. I could have either just been turned around or even briefly imprisoned and then sent home. Um, so we flew into Soleimania, which, you know, you walk off the plane. I'm one of two white guys on the plane. I walk off. I have combat boots on and a duffel bag over my shoulder. And just the, the airport security guard takes one look at me and just sigh and says, all right, on you go. And I, you know, went out to meet my contact, basically. Um, but, but yeah, and so these, these two political parties um, don't like each other. Uh, the Barzanis don't like any of the Kejike groups, which includes uh, Rojava. And Rojava is governed by the PYD, uh, 
Purchased uh, people. I'm so used to just saying these acronyms. So I have to remember what they actually stand for. Democratic Union Party of Syria is uh, PYD. Um, okay. And so that, that is the governing, that is the ruling party in Rojava. And so the PYD and Barzani's KDP have never really gotten along, um, which makes it really unfortunate that it's the KDP who controls the border with uh, Rojava, which is why we had to sneak across the border um, illegally and has often led to issues of, you know, the, the border will be closed, um, economic blockades will be imposed, which all really hampers um, the Rojavan revolution. And it's just like, just starts to highlight when people say like the Kurdish issue or, or the Kurds. The media loves to say the Kurds. And nothing could be like less true than saying the Kurds. That is strictly a concept that exists in the West and to an extent like Kurdish diaspora, who are somewhat separated. Like it's, they, they share an ethnicity and they have some common goals about that, but they are all independent actors, uh, feel deeply tribal. Um, mentalities in some of these groups. Again, like the, the KDP versus the PUK basically all starts along tribal lines. Um, and it's why, despite Barzani being generally unpopular, um, even people who are pro-Barzani will be like, yeah, Barzani kind of sucks. Um, but, you know, my great-grandfather fought for the Barzanis, so I'm still going to fight for the Barzanis. Um, and same, same with the Talbanis. Um, I don't want to, like... I, I think they're slightly better, but they're also still very corrupt politicians who have formed an oligarchy in their region, just like the Barzanis have in theirs. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Soleimani is where I flew into. We drove through the mountains, uh, skipped Erbil. Um, I've never actually been to Erbil, which is... Is fine. I've driven past it. It looks like Las Vegas, but in you know Iraq instead of <laughs> instead of the uh, Nevada desert. Um, then we drove to Dehuk, which is a beautiful city up in the northwest of Iraq. And then from there, I crossed into Syria, just north of uh, Mount Sinjar, um, or Shingal as some people might have heard it as, and that's where the Yazidis were genocided. And I crossed, basically, two weeks before I crossed the border, there had been an offensive that had enabled the YPG to secure a border crossing just north of there. So that's where we ended up crossing, uh, just by car. Okay, and um, at the time in Iraq, the uh, Islamic State, ISIS, Daesh, uh, mm-hmm. Maybe for the purposes of of uh, the, this episode, uh, should we call them ISIS or Daesh? Do you have a preference? Call them Daesh. That's just like Daesh. I I revert to when I talk about people who don't know about it. I will refer to them as ISIS, but Daesh is what I prefer to call them because fuck those guys. So yeah, Daesh. Okay, so Daesh. <laughs> yeah. So at the time, uh, I know that Daesh was uh, was very much in power in many regions of Iraq <laughs> and. Um, so was there a big risk from flying into uh, Soleimania and then traveling to, traveling to the Syrian border and getting across? 
did you mm -hmm. guys encounter any like dash patrols or any any combat going on along that route? Uh, no, and it was like the weirdest. Like, it's it's hard to explain how safe Iraqi Kurdistan is. Um, it has a higher safety rating than most states within the United States do, uh, from the little CIA's travel advisory thing. Um, um, if if nothing else, the like constant a feud between the PUK and KDP has created a very strong security apparatus. I mean, there's checkpoints every like every 50 miles top. You're going through a checkpoint. Oh wow! Okay. Um, and so yeah, I was in Soleimania, which at the time. I want to say was only like a hundred kilometers from the front top. Like, like you, you could, you could get to the front line in a like five hour drive and it's only five hours because the roads are bad and there's lots of checkpoints kind of deal. Yeah. Um, but no, life was very much um, normal um, throughout the uh, KRG away from the front lines. And um, and it's it's really like that in or was like that in all of the places that weren't that didn't have an active front line with ISIS. Um, it really wasn't anything remotely like the uh, U.S. occupation of the country, where hypothetically there wasn't like like this. This is a conventional war. Um, sleeper attacked, infiltration attacked, absolutely did occur. But for the most part, if you're behind the front lines, you're not really going to tell other than like, well, the price of sugar is really high. So I know there's a war going on. And uh, half, the, half the houses in my neighborhood got airstruck. But otherwise, like it's relatively normal. And um, so, yeah, that was there was like the, the rational part of my brain, the journalist part of my brain that had done the research knew that I was going to be safe. But I did land in Soleimania. And the first the first person I met in Kurdistan was Portuguese, um, as one does in an international conflict. Uh, and his name was Mario Nunes, and he was returning to the YPG for his second tour. Uh, he had done a six month tour of duty in 2015, and was returning here at the end of 2015, start of 2016, to do a second tour. And uh, he was uh, his parents were um, of. Moroccan and Angolan descent. So he was very much like not a typical white Portuguese person. He comes up to me with an accent. He's like, my friend, are you with the Lions of Rojava? And there was a part of my brain that was like, ah, oh, man, I didn't even make it out of the airport before ISIS abducted me. <laughs> but then the rational part of me is like, no, he's with. And so I just like had him show me the tech, the same text we all get from the uh, the YPG safe house. I'm like, okay, yeah. And he's like, oh, wait, you're Portuguese. All right, cool. Sounds good. Um, and he was one of my very good friends. Um, but yeah, it's safe. And yeah, like um, our biggest issue was not ISIS. It was the KDP. The, the biggest risk of crossing from Soleimania, which is on the far, it's on the far east of Iraqi Kurdistan. And getting all the way across Iraqi Kurdistan, essentially, to the border with Rojava, the only risk was um, the KDP, was being arrested by the KDP and imprisoned by them. Wow, uh, okay. Yeah, which, so yeah, like, we, we weren't even really remotely worried about ISIS. Um, like, it was, it was really just like, don't get arrested by the KDP. Um, 
which fortunately for me at the time, especially Iraqi Kurdistan, great place to have a U.S. passport. Most of it was just rolling up to Iraqi checkpoints, flashing my passport, and then going, Peachy oh, George Bush. And I'm like, yeah, I'm George Bush, I guess. And being waved through. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And we, we'd also very clearly bribed some of the guards. Like, that's how we crossed, like, when we crossed the border, like, they had us, like, dress up as Peshmerga, you know, like, in Peshmerga uniforms. So it's like, they know what's going on. I am so pasty white that there is not the slightest chance that they don't understand who I am and what this taxi ride is for. Um, so we clearly, you know, paid the right guys off. Um, but yeah, yeah. So Iraqi Kurdistan at the time, yeah, despite the front at the time not being too far away. Um, because yeah, t- like 2014 into 2015 was kind of the height of Dash's power. Um, and then they receded a little bit. But like looking on a map, like going into 2016, ISIS had lost their offensive momentum. They weren't, they were no longer on the offensive against the Iraqi army or the Peshmerga. Um, but I mean, they were still very much in a stable and powerful position. Like the, the war wasn't over, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at the map and uh I, I see the uh I maybe kind of the route from Soleimania. Um from Soleimania the, there's a mountain range that runs uh kind of north by northwest and it, it kind of uh circumvents uh Erbil yep. and it also looks like the mountains go around Mosul, mm-hmm. which uh I, I can't imagine you driving through Mosul would have been very feasible at the time. At the time, no, that was still the the de facto capital of the Islamic State. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, both both Mosul and Erbil are actually pretty close to each other, and they're both on the uh, it's the Nineveh Plain after the old Assyrian city of Nineveh. Um, so it's it's the Nineveh Plain is what that's called, and we basically just skirted it. Like we we didn't go into the plain; we just kept into that mountain range. Yeah. Uh, to the north of it. Yeah, I, I looking at that terrain, I, I have the terrain map or terrain overlay <laughs> up on Google Maps right now, and I, I would do the same thing if I was trying to get from Soleimania to Sinjar without yep. hitting Mo- Mosul. So, uh, very interesting. Um, so once you crossed over into Syria and, and into uh, the Syrian uh, Kurdistan or uh, Rojava, <laughs> what what were your next steps once you got on ground there? So by that point, I mean once you once you show up in Soleimania, uh, you you call the number that you are told to call, and you are from that point on you you are in the YPG's basically smuggling system. Like you you don't have to do anything; they're going to take care of everything as much as possible. Your job is like don't fuck up, don't don't get arrested in the ten days usually it takes between arriving in Soleimania to when you will leave. Uh, Across the border. Um, so I just don't fuck up, don't get drunk in town and get arrested. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I mean, when we, when we cross the border um, and again, we, we cross like pretty close to the front line, like, um, like where we cross was the first time you look outside the car windows, you're driving by like, Oh yeah, there's a war going on here.
So Freeman is about to discuss crossing the border from Iraq into Syria, and he's going to make some commentary on how there's not really a good sign or indication that he has crossed from one country into another. The audio will cut out. You're not really missing much here, but I wanted to clarify because it's not necessarily super clear what the, what the I guess, missed word is there. So yeah. He's making his way across the border. There's no border crossing. There's no signs. There's nothing other than suddenly they're rolling up on a YPG base in the middle of the night. And he was in Syria and didn't even know it. The Soleimani is untouched. Uh, the hook is untouched. Um, you're, you're passing by refugee camps as you do that drive. But there's not active signs like warfare and destruction. This is why borders are bullshit. I mean, there's there was not not even a sign. There's just you know, all of a sudden there was a YPG base flying a YPG flag, um, and so I got out. We took off our Peshmerga uniforms we had dressed up in, and um, threw on. I don't even think they gave me Yepige clothes yet. I just threw on normal clothes, and uh, from there we drove up to the academy. Is, as it's known. Um, I feel like every good story of military service has some dreaded um, boot camp. And um, it is it is the academy for, for foreigners joining the YPG. That's uh, located um, in, in an area. I mean, I'm not going to be overly secret about it. You can literally Google it. <laughs> Look at the Google map photos of it. But it's it's um, near the city of Derek or uh, Al Malikia, as it is known in Arabic. Um, that's that's in the northeast portion of northern Syria. It's it's the northeasternmost city. Yeah, it's, um, I, I'm looking at that right now. It looks like it's just a stone's throw away from the Turkish border. Yeah, yeah. You you can. It's it's really one of the coolest things. Is so Syria is very flat. And the border with Turkey is the Taurus mountain range, um, which being a history nerd like I am was like just super cool. And it's like, it's like, it's flat, 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 flat. And where do you know the border is? It's where the mountains just shoot up thousands of feet above perfectly flat ground all around. So yeah, it was gorgeous. That sounds, that sounds pretty gorgeous. I I've never been to that part, but um, just looking at photos, my spouse had the opportunity to travel to uh, Iran a few years ago and I've seen I've seen pictures of of the region and it's it's just so breathtakingly gorgeous and I wish I you know yeah. had the opportunity to go there me too yeah even amongst the, all the Kurds are like you know every every Kurd likes their part of Kurdistan oh yeah Rajah was nice uh, Bashur um, so- southern Kurdistan is nice Bakor is nice, but everyone's like, oh yeah, but Iranian Kurdistan, Rojalop, that's the pretty part. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Um, so so once you got to the academy, you went through uh, I've I've heard like a- accounts of it being maybe three or four months of training and language immersion as well. Is that correct? So that's definitely a new thing. Well, not new at this point. I guess it has been half a decade since I was there. Um that was after when I was there, it had been, it had just been extended to 21 days. 21 days was going to be your basic training. Um, for the first group of people, the first volunteers who went out there in 2014 and 2015, 
they would oftentimes stay a day at the academy and then go off to the front lines. Um, and that gradually got lengthened. And so when I was there, and now January of 2016 is when I get to the academy, um, yeah, basic training had been up uh, to 21 days. And that was mostly um, mostly language lessons. At least the most useful thing you did there was language lessons. Um, there was ideology, which you will, you will always read wonderful firsthand accounts of right-wing volunteers who volunteered for a group with a giant red star and all their flags get there and be like, wait a second, guys are saying something. <laughs> um, and they'll like, yeah, they, they tried to brainwash you with ideology. And like the brainwashing with ideology is John Share, some uh, some Georgian guy sit like from the country of Georgia, sitting down and like reading from a pamphlet about like broad overviews of Kurdish history and the uh, Kurdish struggle in Turkey. And then being like, does anybody have any questions? Would we like to have conversation? And like, you have all these Western military veterans who like went through an organization that buzzes your head, dehumanizes you and teaches you like that your job is to die for the core for America or Australia or whatever. And then they'd sit there and have the audacity to be like, well, this sounds like brainwashing to me. Yeah, that sounds, uh, that sounds pretty, pretty much, um, uh, par for the course with, with, uh, you know, my own experiences in the, in the U S military. Yeah, uh, was, that, that, that very much sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it was, it was great. Yeah. And so, yeah, like little Kurdish ideology lessons, which like at the time, like, they didn't even really teach you anything about Rojava because like Rojava was still so new to them that they were like, what's the only lesson material we have prepared? Oh, it's these old PKK handbooks. Let's use those, I guess. So, so you learn, you learn a lot about Abdullah Ocalan and you like broad overviews of democratic confederalism and stuff. And, uh, yeah. Interesting. So, so, um, I, what I've heard about some of those like pamphlets is that a lot of, a lot of the material comes from like eighties and nineties pamphleting and propaganda from within Turkey back when Abdullah Ocalan, uh, was arrested and, and turned into a political prisoner in Turkey. Yeah. And, um, he, no, he go ahead. definitely a bit upgraded. They like definitely from like the mid 2000s at least. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, it, yeah. You know, a nice update. Yeah, it was it was post post um, abduction, um, which is why you get plenty of die of uh, rants against Germany and the CIA. <laughs> yeah, thrown in there, and we sure. will never forgive Germany for it was the Germans who cooperated with the Turks. Didn't everyone cooperate with the Turks? Yes, and we will never forgive them too. And this is still that Georgian guy teaching you everything. Yeah, we had um, two teachers. Um, Haval Jamsher and Haval Zinar, um, both are ethic, both are ethically Kurdish, but Jamsher had been born and grew up in Georgia. Okay. Uh, before joining the party, um, and so he was he was cool. You'll hear many bad things about him from volunteers. I never had any issues with him. I thought he was a cool guy. Stubborn, as you know, is a trait of men everywhere <laughs> um, and but yeah 
Okay, and then Dinar was our was a curd from uh, Bakor, uh, Turkey. Um, and yeah, they they were they they both spoke English, so they were our teachers. There there was a smattering of other curds there, um, some who had just been wounded and needed something to do while they their wounds healed, who would like teach us tactics and stuff. And uh, John Sharon's in our translate that down to us, but they they were our teachers for the most part. Okay. Um, now, feel free not to answer this if it maybe compromises, uh, I guess, like the operational security of the of the Kurds and what they're teaching. Uh, something that I learned in uh, while serving as an officer in the U.S. military and specifically in staff roles and and kind of battle planning is that a lot of uh, so-called adversaries of the U.S. military seem to adopt uh, kind of like Soviet doctrine. Uh, since that's kind of what proliferated throughout the periphery of the world, since the Soviets were all about not only spreading their their message of of uh, you know Soviet style communism, socialism, what have you, mm-hmm. but also they were doing it to undermine the U.S. the uh, the, the U. Uh, excuse me, the United States imperial capabilities. Would you be able to speak to like the Kurdish? I guess tactics and strategy is it rooted within kind of this older soviet doctrine or have they developed their own military uh like planning process and and their own unique set of uh tactics how how do they operate in that sense definitely i i I don't think you can look at it and say like oh yeah this is the soviet doctrine this is soviet planning um i don't think you can look at it and be like this is any conventional military planning um um, like like the tactics we were taught. Um, again, we are we are being taught by guys who were for the most part had spent most of their life fighting in the mountains of Bakor of Turkish Kurdistan. And um, excuse me. And um, and then Rojava's flat, like flat, flat. Like you get on a hill. If you find a hill, you can get on a hill and see for like a hundred miles in either direction. Wow. And um. So the what we were taught was actually woefully inadequate for the environment we were in because it was the environment that they had been trained in. And it's it's pretty typical um, mountain-style ambushes, um, which are different, I guess you could say, from typical ambush doctrine. Um, there, it was really, it was like, um, if anything, it was like Vietnamese, grab them by the belt. Because um, you got to get in close to the Turks, or they're going to call in air support. So it's about maneuvering and ambushing in close quarters in mountain environments, which you can do in mountain environments as long as you know the terrain. They're relatively easy to maneuver and get close to the uh, your enemy. Um, that's really not possible um, in Rojava. In most parts of Rojava, there there are a few areas of Syria where the terrain does suit. Um, this type of warfare style, we were just not in it. <laughs> um, yeah, and and yeah, I, like you really couldn't say anything about any sort of conventional military doctrine outside of like basic weapon handling. Um, they they would uh, they would chicken wing um, when they hold their AK rifles. That's I guess that's like the old style Soviet manual of arms like how you shoot an ak um 
I feel like that's like the one thing you could look at and be like, oh, they probably learned that from the, from the Russians. Um, the rest of it is, I mean, birds are no stranger to war. They have their own. They have, and this, they will tell you this all the time. Um, it was quite like one of the big frustrating things is like trying to get them to accept or adopt more conventional style military. Um, small unit tactics and stuff, if nothing else. And just and they would straight up say, like, no, this is how we fight wars. This is how we've always fought. This is how we will continue to fight. Um, so, yeah, very... And, like, skipping ahead to, like, post-training, I think if you look at, like, the actual tactics of the YPG on a strategic level, not just a, uh, like, small unit scale... Yeah, they they really just kind of cobbled together something that worked for them. Um, definitely, especially once they started getting U.S. airstrikes. I think there's a definite shift in their battlefield tactics from before kind of very cautious offensives, whenever they did have to go on the offensive. Uh, they the, the YPG's strength has always been they're probably one of the best defensive fighting forces in Syria. Um, Offensively, I don't think they're they were ever anything overly to write home about. Um, well, they they did they had successful offensives against Jabhat al Nusra against uh, Daesh in the early days, um, but definitely once they got U.S. airstrikes, very different sort of tactics that involved like we're going to puncture their lines in one spot and just basically blitzkrieg as much as we can and try to pull off these giant encirclement operations. Um, oh, okay. Which, which they could do because they had U.S. air support to guard their flanks. They, they could keep that very narrow front. They were that very narrow wedge. They could generally keep that protected. But that's definitely not something they would have done if they hadn't had access to U.S. air support. Like, that is something that they kind of learned organically and adopted organically. And it's like, what do we have? We have Toyota Hiluxes that can haul ass. And we can blow stuff up from the sky. How do we make that work for us in a way that we've never had that work for us before? Um, and it's, again, especially like these large scale attacks of you know thousands of people involved. When they're coming from a military tradition, it's like cool. Let's send fifty guys to attack a Turkish outpost in the mountains. And now it's like cool. Let's send a thousand guys to encircle the city of Al Shadadi. And see how that goes. That's uh, that sounds like quite a shift in uh, in the way that they approached their uh, their battle planning. Yep, I think so. And uh, yeah, like they uh, the YPG commanders, I think don't don't get enough credit for um, tactical or uh, strategic. Strategic competence. I, I think they don't get enough credit for way, once waging the war better than they had anticipated being able to wage it, I guess. Trying to find a way to phrase it. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Uh, at, at least to me, it makes sense. <laughs> so after you left the academy, where was the first uh, area that you got stationed or sent to? I don't know what terminology they use. I'm sure things are constantly in flux out there. No, you, you get yeah, you, you get sent to your unit basically, um, and so yeah, tw- twenty one days of training. Um, 
you know, give you an AK once, take it apart once, put it back together once, fire nine rounds out of it. Cool, you're trained on an AK. Give it a PKM, take it apart once, put it back together once, shoot three rounds out of it. Cool, you're trained on a PKM. This oh is an Here's an RPG. We're not going to let you touch it because we don't trust you because it's going to go boom. But this is what <laughs> it is. Cool, you're trained on an RPG. And then you get to the front line and the first question they ask you is like, do you know how to use an RPG? And you're like, eh, technically. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and oh so, God. yeah, 21 days of training, and the YPG operates on a note system. The, the, entire, the entire military structure of the YPG operates on high school-level passing of notes to each other. Uh, do you like me? Check yes, check no. Um, this, is, this is a security measure to stop spies from being able to easily intercept communications, supposedly. Um, but then it's like, no one signed this note. Anyone could have written that. Well, it doesn't matter. Um, so I was sent to... Specifically, I remember they, they would ask you if... They would, they would bring you into the room at the academy and ask you if you knew what unit you wanted to go to. Um, and you, you can ask to go to uh, the CU cast to Boers, um, the sniper to Boers. Um, can ask to go to Sea Legrand, uh, heavy weapons. Um, can, you can ask to go anywhere. And I was kind of like, I, I had had a group of friends I had made at the academy left like five days before me, left like five days before my 21 days was up. And I'm kind of like, yeah, just wherever they go. So they handed me a note and it said Heraketli on it. And so I got sent to the Heraketli Tabors, um, which is a Turkish word that translates as movement, basically. And the best way to contextualize them in a Western context, I guess, is these, these were the stormtroopers or the, the shock troop units of the YPG. Um, so I was sent to the town of Peltammer. Um, stopped by in Kamishlo on the way, drove by a regime checkpoint, flipped them off. That was cool. Um, fuck those guys. Um, get dropped off in Peltammer. And in a big old cattle, an old, the, the Dutch had built like this massive cattle grazing infrastructure plant just north of the town in the mid 2000s. And that had obviously been abandoned. And that had been co opted by the YPG as the big military base in the area. And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, went to a all Western unit to spend my first night there. Well, the commander there. Um, basically asked us, like, do you want to join our unit or do you want to go to another unit? And if so, I'll make that happen. And, you know, uh, one of the uh, commanders of the overall base came and talked to us, like, cool, where do you want to go? And I was like, wherever my friends are, I'll go to them. And next morning, so, yeah, we get to sell hammer like, midnight. Um, you wake up at 6 a.m. the next morning, and they're like, cool, you're going here. And they whisk you down the road. Um, like, 30 minutes or however long away your base is, and then you're dropped off at your Tabor and, without a rifle <laughs> and told, good luck. And your your Tabor is just kind of like, who are you? And I'm like, I'm with you guys now. And they're like, oh, you got a no? No, actually. Eh, all right. Guess you're with us now. Super official. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, you could you could literally just wander up to any unit realistically and be like, hey, I'm with you guys now. And I mean, as long as the commander is down for having a Westerner in his unit, you're you're in. <laughs> wow, that 
I'm trying to imagine just showing up somewhere like, all right, I'm here for warfare, and you don't even have a rifle. And <laughs> oh, that, yeah, I was I that continued the me not having a rifle thing was it was a it was a thing for a while, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, I was I was to the Heraketli Tabors, and so those are the movement Tabors, and then there's also Nobat Tabors, um, which means dark Tabors, basically. Um, so when you have when there's no active offensive going on. The Heraketli Tabors are back in Barrett, um, in my case, until Tamar, um, since I was in the uh, Jazeera Canton military apparatus. Um, and so, yeah, we, we just stayed in base. And hypothetically, this was the period of time in which the, the Tabor is training and stuff. Um, in reality, it's you're just sitting around being bored as fuck and not doing much of anything. Except trying to find a place to poop and enough wood for firewood. That, that's like that's your life, and it's cold because it's January and February in northern Syria, and the wind's a bitch. <laughs> and but then once there is an offensive, again, like kind of why I think like stormtroopers or stock troopers is the best way to contextualize Heracli Tabors is because they're like once there is an offensive, they're the ones who make the breach in the line and go go go. Until they're dead or they replace you, basically, by guard divorce. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, went, I went to a perfectly nice behind-the-lines area um, for my first... Well, I want to say that was, like... Realistically, it was only, like, two weeks, but it felt like eternity, I tell you. <laughs> Before we uh, went on our first offensive action, um, which was... The liberation of Al Shaddadi. Um, so, just the Shaddadi operation is what you would call it in the Yepage. Um, Hamle Shaddad. Um, so, the operation for Shaddadi. Um, and yeah, that, that happened. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm looking at a map and, and I am just lost. If you're looking at the area, so if you're looking at the northeast corner, you should see um, Kamishlo, just south of a Turkish city called Nusabin. Okay, Nusabin looks like it's right on the stinking border. Yeah, it's it's a uh, remnant of the uh, World War One treaty, where it's like, cool, this is the border now, and they literally just cut towns in half. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yep. Yep, and so you'll see Kamishlo, and if you just south of Kamishlo, you'll see a highway called the M4. And if you follow that um, to the west, when you get to the banks of the river um, on the map, you'll see Teltammer, or Paul Hammer, P-A-L-L-T-A-M-R. And so directly, so I was stationed, I mean, not stationed, my my unit found basically an abandoned village um, that was in the desert about 30 minutes south of Teltammer. Um, so that's where we were staying. Um, and you'll see the, so south of Tel Tamer, if you have the terrain on, you'll see it's flat, and then there's a mountain range. That's called the Abdulaziz Mountain Range. And if you look south of that, and slightly to the southeast, you'll see Ash Shadadi, A-S-H-S-H-A-D-D-A-D-I. Um, and then you'll see the city of Al-Hasake to the north, if you just go up the uh, Highway 7. 
Highway 7, okay, yeah. Al Hasake, Abiyad Town, Al Kamayel. Yeah, and you just follow that south, and there's Ashadadi at the intersect of uh, 715 and 7. There yep. it is, okay. So basically, when I was there, so that uh, that Abdulaziz mountain range to the north was the uh, front line. Um, that, that was where the front line was. Um, and again, being, being a journalist, I think I was a little more clued in to the court what the course of the war was going to be um because there's not a whole lot of opsec in syria the, the kurds are very much like we will we will come for shadadi and isis were like we will fight you in shadadi so i'm like so i guess we're going to shadadi next um so so that's that's why i requested to be sent to i was like i want to go to a unit that's gonna go fight in shadadi um and so that was the front line was the abdulaziz mountains I was about 60 kilometers south of where my base was. It was close enough that there were a few nights where ISIS launched little uh, raids along the Abdulaziz Mountains, and you could see the tracer fire and rockets, actually, from the uh, from the mountain range. Um, it was oh, wow. cool. I guess, yeah, I guess I do want to say, like, my first experience, like, the first thing I heard of war was nothing in Syria or Iraq, actually. On a clear winter night at the academy, um, you could actually hear Turkish bombs going off in the city of Dizra, um, which was just across the border from Derek. And uh, that that was my first experience of war, was listening to the Kurds just carpet bomb their own city. Um, wow. And you could just, it was really eerie. You would just, it was a, only on clear nights when there was no clouds. You could just hear the distant thud of explosives. And that, that was like the first, that was like the first war that I heard. And so, yeah. Yeah. And so, cause it's, it's just such a flat country. So yeah, I'm 60 kilometers north of the Abdulaziz mountain range, but you can, I could see RPGs being fired. Like you could see just a little wow. boom, like a little slash, yeah. a little tracer arc off. It just felt flat and on like clear night, just, I don't know, everything showed up really well. Um, I also saw more shooting stars there in my like I saw more shooting stars in my first week in the Middle East than I did my entire life before. There's just something about that night that is captivating. Yeah, yeah. The um, hearing the sounds of battle far off is is a very surreal experience. Um, if I guess for whoever is listening to this, if you have never heard it before, that I don't think there's a way to like fully describe or, or, or capture it because so like my, my own experience with this, um, I was stationed in East Africa and Djibouti and, uh, where we were in Djibouti, I think was, I'm just going to ballpark it. I'm probably wrong, but it was like 20 or 30 miles from, from South mm-hmm. Yemen and the U S maintains a presence there and they do all sorts of operations that I'm not going to mention here. And, um, and of course at the time, 2015, 2016, the uh, the U.S. military was at least providing material support, if nothing else, to the Saudis and the the Saudi-backed Yemeni government mm-hmm. against the South Yemen um, uh, military, whoever. Yeah. And uh, there were there was like three nights where I'm just I worked the night shift. Mm-hmm. I was in charge of the security of the base. And there were a few nights where I could have sworn that I heard just like distant booms yeah. coming from um, the, the bases right next to the Indian Ocean. 
as you prepare to head into the Bab Al-Mandeb Strait, which is the the uh, uh, the gate of tears into the Red Sea. And I didn't see any flashes. Well, well one night I couldn't I couldn't tell if it was lightning or flashes from like bombs. Mm-hmm. But I, I I as as a field artillery person from the army, like I I knew the sound of bombs. I knew what I was listening to. And I I could have sworn I heard it uh, off in the direction of where I knew Yemen to be. And it was just like being so close that you can hear it and yet far enough that it's not personally impacting you and just picturing the like the the sheer terror that people on the ground there must be going through. It was just it was the most surreal experience. And and again, I can't really fully articulate or capture it. Yeah, you really can't. It's it's haunting in a way that like like I, I grew up like in the uh, vicinity of a uh the Utah National Guard base and uh, the U.S. Air Force has a massive testing range out here in Utah. So, like, I've I've heard artillery before. I've heard airstrikes before. Um, well, I guess air, bombs being dropped um, before. Um, the, the, like that. That's it's literally incomprehensibly different to hear it in a war scenario, especially when you're just hearing it and like vaguely seeing it in the distance. Like, yeah, I, like. I, I don't really have a way to describe, like, just, just the impression that left on me, like, sitting there at 2 a.m. on guard duty with an AK that doesn't work because they didn't trust you with AK that worked. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, just listening to explosions going off. And at first I didn't know where, what they were. Like, Is that, like, the front? I thought we were, like, because we were, like, at the academy, you're, like, 300 kilometers away from the front line of ISIS. I'm like, that's not ISIS. And they're like, oh no, that's that's Bakor. Um, and that's how they would describe it. So they were like, oh, that's the war. In terms, you know, that that's that's just Bakor. That's just life in northern Kurdistan. Uh, wow. Um, yeah, when, when I was there, yeah, it was when I was there coincided with something that a lot of people don't know about, but it's called the city wars or the trench wars um, in Turkey and in Kurdistan. And it's something that you probably saw absolutely no news coverage on and will hardly ever be able to find anything to read about. Um, But it was a massive urban war between the PKK and the Turkish army that lasted a year and leveled most of the cities in Kurdish region of uh, Turkey. yeah, and you you won't really be able to find any information on that because the West doesn't care, uh, as we do. Yeah, right. Yeah, they they absolutely do not because Turkey is now a NATO partner or ally or whatever yeah. you want to call them. Despite their, um, I know that they often have competing uh, strategic yeah. interests in Always. the region <laughs> to the U.S. and other other NATO nations. Maybe and I, I love. <laughs> I I absolutely shipments from crossing the streets of Constantinople. So let's just put up with Turkey, I guess. Yep. No, I my favorite dynamic about the whole Turkey being part of NATO is that like Turkey and the US almost came to maybe exchanging fire at one point in um was it 2018 or 2019 back when the US basically abandoned the the Kurds in Syria. Yeah. And and uh Trump was not I guess willing he he took some like hard lines against 
any sort of military action. And, and if I'm not mistaken, the U.S. even used uh, air support against Russian mercenaries there and completely destroyed their uh, mercenary yeah. unit or whatever oh, kind of unit. Yeah, that, that was a different event. Um, that happened in 2018 still. Um, that was that was unrelated to the uh, Turkish invasion of Rojava. Um, that was okay. that happened in an area called Derizor. Um And I mean, to be honest, it's one of those things that like we may never know the full story. Um, the, the the Western interpretation of it, as it's often is like the Russian military and a bunch of Syrian units tried to attack a. Uh, oil field that had u.s soldiers at it in reality like and yeah like you'll see like west like a bunker 530 combat footage he's like the bet's not right dude we crushed him man and it's like no it was like if there if there was large-scale russian involvement it was uh the wagner company which is a russian mercenary company because this is the world we live in now where there's mercenary companies like everywhere oh yes um yep and yeah, they, and it was mostly, as far as we know, it was still mostly like Iranian backed militia factions. And also maybe some Wagner, maybe no Wagner. It's like, I mean, it's kind of like hard to know who to trust on this, on this one, but it does seem there, there does seem to be enough like ex Wagner people who've now come out in the years since, but like, yeah, we, some of us were there. So there was probably a, a chunk of Wagner mercenaries in this group. But yeah, they just got airstruck into oblivion. Um, <laughs> But that was, that was yeah, unrelated. I, the U.S. and Turks have never directly um, fired at each other. There were periods of time in 2016 and 2017 where the uh, jihadists that the Turks employ for cannon fodder in most of their ground operations were sharing the same positions as Turks and would shoot at U.S. military, and the U.S. military would shoot back at them who happened to be with the Turks, but then that, you know, quieted things down. The Turks like, oh, fuck, yeah. <laughs> um, but that's like, that's right. as close as that ever got um, to happen. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, it's like just back to like the West not caring. I mean, like, so in April of 2016, um, there was a fight between the Syrian regime and the YPG in the city of Kamishlo. And um, I was involved in that. I, I believe, I don't want to like toot my own horn, but all evidence, I believe I am the first Western volunteer in the YPG to shoot at the Syrian regime. Pretty sure that's my claim to fame, if I get anything. Um, Congratulations. I, I'm very happy about it. It's the one thing. <laughs> it's, it's the one thing that I'm like... <laughs> And so, so yeah, my, my unit was sent into that. It basically just sort of like two checkpoints. Like there had been an ISIS car bomb in the city the day before, and that like set off the checkpoints. They, they're always kind of twitchy and nervous about each other. Um, but I just like set them off and they started fighting. And usually like that's not too unusual. That happens from time to time, but it usually calms down. For this, in, this scenario, for whatever, back in April 2016, the regime, not even the regime, the, the militia, in Kamishlo that fights for the regime is like, we're going to escalate this for no reason and just start like dropping artillery and tanks firing into the city and stuff. Uh, they, end up, they ended up like flying in Republican Guard and supposedly Hezbollah um, people into Kamishlo Airport, which the Syrian regime still controls. 
And so, yeah, they brought up my Epic unit and some others. We had it out for an afternoon. Good times. Um, anyway, so, like, the, this, this fighting lasted, like, three days. And it's pretty small scale. Um, I think, like, official, like, I think we killed, like, nine of them, captured a few dozen more. Um, we had, like, two killed, war wounded, um, none captured. And um, a few civilians were killed by the indiscriminate mortar fire um, from the regime. But, like, all, all in all, pretty low-scale fight. And this, this fight received so much media coverage. Like, everyone reported on this for, for some reason. For whatever reason, the Kurds and the regime may be fighting. Got all the media attention. And the entire time while I was there, fighting this very small-scale firefight for all intents and purposes. Um, in the city of Nusabin, just to our north, um, the Turks were dropping white phosphorus rounds in the city center. Um, you, could, you could see there's a hill to the north of Nusabin, and you could just see the Turkish guns just constantly firing from the top of that into the city, uh, day 24-7. I, I have seen the U.S. coalition drop massive ordnance on dash positions um, all of it kind of just pales to the sheer intensity of the Turkish bombardment on their on the city of Nusabin. Um, and in fact, you can look, you can Google Nusabin, and probably one of the first images you see on Google Image will be of a Turkish military convoy in the center of the city, and it's just completely leveled because um, they you know, they made a desert and called it peace. Um, and that, and the only, the only media coverage about that, this thing that's happening literally across the border, like you cannot escape the sound. Like I didn't, that the night before I fought the regime, I didn't get any sleep because I wasn't quite a veteran enough then to be able to sleep through constant artillery bombardment. I did get there eventually, but it wasn't quite there yet. And it's just like, it was just nonstop all through the night. And that the only piece of media coverage about Turkey in general was a story about Angela Merkel praising Erdogan in Turkey as a model country for accepting Syrian refugees. Oh my God! So just kind of like to highlight the uh, the the lack of caring, I guess, or yeah, even if not just a lack of caring, the the inability to confront Turkey on their, on their crimes, basically. Yeah. And I'm sure that especially with your background as a journalist, that must've been incredibly frustrating. It really was. I mean, I guess it would have been less frustrating to me if like, if for some reason this little checkpoint flare up between us and the regime didn't receive so much coverage. Like we got, like we ended up on the New York goddamn times, like my uh, Tabor commander, that has like a fabulous photo of him from the Associated Press that got like plastered all over the internet as he's like coolly walking down the street with his gun talking on the radio. It's like, damn, too funny, look hot. Um, yeah, it just like blew up for some reason and literally right across the border, like you, you can't miss it. It's just Turkey leveling an entire city with civilians still in it. Like civilians weren't allowed to leave most parts oh of the my city. God. Yeah, I think I found the image um, that you're describing. I, I googled. Uh, uh, I'm going to mispronounce the the city. Yeah. Nusabin. Nus. Uh, Nusab- I would pronounce it 
pronounce it Nusabin, uh, just kind of like Turkish pronunciation, but that might be, I don't speak Turkish, so Nusabin might be the Turkish. Okay, so Nus yeah, Nusabin, Nusabin. Um, there, there's an image of what looks to be like a whole bunch of uh, Turkish MRAPs. And as you said, in the background, there are the remnants of buildings, but mm -hmm. I don't see a single building intact. And then there's a whole bunch of uh, of the Turkish massive crescent. flags just draped. Yeah, there. and it's it's to me it's kind of reminiscent of. I don't know the way that like in the United States, uh, the people that would support the U S military apparatus are, um, the, the way that they fetishize violence. Mm -hmm. It seems to me to evoke that same kind of response where it's like, Oh, look, here's the military and here's all of our flags. Yay. Yeah. Turkish nationalism. And, you know, behold the mighty power of our military machine. Yeah. Yeah. It really yeah. is. Like I, it truly is the summary of they made a desert and called it peace. I don't think there's a better image that's ever been taken that like resembles yeah. that. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting freaking chills just looking at that. Not the good kind of chills. Like, yeah. ugh, it's, it's disgusting. Um, yeah. I mean, and that was just like a constant of life. Um, anytime we were conducting operations remotely close to um, the Turkish border was just constant artillery fire. And, and like the Turks will be like, oh, well, we didn't utilize our jets. Um, so it was humane. We didn't, we didn't airstrike our own cities. Um, okay. No, no, no. I, that, I, need to, I need to take an issue with that. I, I was a field artillery officer in the United States military. And um, the way that you minimize uh, collateral damage is not using fucking cannons. <laughs> let, let me just say... The cannons, so I, I don't know what weapon platform uh, or what weapon system they use in Turkey if mm -hmm. they are a NATO nation and they, they get funding from the United States. I'm going to imagine it's something in the ballpark of 155 millimeter howitzer. Yeah, that and, and a lot of uh, upgraded M60 uh, patent tanks. Okay, okay, yeah. So so the uh, 155 millimeter, um, I, I'm not going to name the nomenclatures or anything because I, I, don't, I don't know if this could get me in trouble. But um, essentially, there's there's kind of an understood 50 meter kill radius, uh, or excuse me, uh, so 50 is in five zero meter casualty producing radius of a uh, 155 millimeter shell exploding. So if you if if that explodes, you're in 155 millimeter, um, or excuse me, you're in 50 meters of that. There's a pretty good chance that you're going to be at least incapacitated and injured. And then if you're within uh, 15 meters, uh, one five meters, uh, that's kind of understood to be the kill uh, radius. So when you shoot a barrage of artillery, you have what's known as the, um, you know, I'm not going to get too technical in it, but basically there's, there's this like expected impact point that 80% of the time you're going to have your rounds landing in this area, but occasionally they're going to just land outside of it. Mm -hmm. And U.S. military planners, when, when they're planning military operations and they, they have an obligation to do any sort of collateral damage estimation and planning, they will use uh, this, this metric. It's called the circular error probable mm -hmm. to establish like, okay, based on this weapon system, this type of munition, and the circular error probable for for that munition for that weapon system, 
we have assessed that there's a likelihood that we're going to have highs, you know, collateral damage, low collateral damage, whatever. So um, when you're shooting a barrage of artillery, you know, you're shooting 10 rounds, 20 rounds downrange from a battery of artillery. You can expect that entire barrage to just blanket an area, whether you converge the rounds onto a single point and you just completely destroy it or you spread them out. Like there's, there's a lot of different ways yeah. to, to approach it from a tactical perspective. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess what I'm trying to get at is if you are attempting to minimize collateral damage, you don't just shoot cannons with all of these. Um, when, when it comes to the ballistics, they're called inherent errors mm-hmm. that you cannot control for them. There are just these errors in the ballistics that are going to cause one round to land 20 feet you know, further away than your other rounds or something. Right. And, and it's, it is, uh, by design or 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 at least uh, like mechanically speaking it's just th- there's a limitation to how precise it can be as a system when you are talking about aircraft typically aircraft will drop either guided munitions or uh or non-guided munitions and the the non-guided or what they're referred to as like dumb bombs those will also have varying i don't know chance at at you know hitting wherever but when you get to like the precision munitions, those things yeah. you can you can take out half of a house and leave the other half intact. Yep. Yeah. And so like yeah. if if what I'm getting at is if you want to minimize the collateral damage, you do it with aircraft with guided munitions, precision munitions. You don't do it with artillery. So mm-hmm. that statement that they're trying to be more humane on its face is utterly ridiculous if you understand anything about how the artillery works. Yeah. And I mean, it's also like, I should highlight that like the Turks weren't even good at shooting artillery at this point. Um, The Turkish Uh army has professionalized a lot in the five years I've been there. They've had a lot of combat experience that has professionalized them. 2016, it was not that army. And I would actually be subjected to Turkish artillery fire in August of 2016. And we we didn't know it was Turkish because it was so wildly inaccurate um, that we just assumed it had to be ISIS. Um, And that's a discredit to ISIS. ISIS has walked Katusha rockets onto my position, like classic, like ranging shots, and then just nailed us. Um, Like they, they are good at what they did. The Turks are just like, we're throwing a few rounds here and there. And like the only thing they hit was a civilian house in the village we were in. Um, oh my God. And yeah. We, we just, we just didn't know that it was like, I, I didn't know until I got back. I had been wounded in a fight that night and was like on, it wasn't until I got back to the hospital at the rear end. I'm like, yeah. And then ISIS was like throwing mortars at us. and like, Oh no, those are the Turks. Oh wait, what? <laughs> oh yeah. The Turks are bombing us today. It's like, Oh, Cool, I guess. Um, and yeah, it was like it was less accurate than than most of the DAF um, artillery fire I have been subjected to. Um, yeah. So so they weren't even like good at it yet. Like they they've gotten much better. You can see enough of their footage. Like they they can they are fully capable of like more professional implementation of artillery. Um, but they they were literally just like yeah, we'll just throw some artillery rounds in this general vicinity. And yeah. yeah, that's what it sounds like. Um, if they're just if it's just hitting all over the place, that means that they don't have their forward observers out, assuming they utilize 
kind of like a modern modern any military yeah. uh, way of approaching the artillery question? Yeah, no, I mean, we would have been about within 30 kilometers of the Turkish border. We were pushing, pushing for a border town called Jerobulus. And, um, and uh, but we, were, we were well within 30 kilometers. And it was probably just some guys sitting up in the tower they have on the border and being like, that village over there might have Yepigay in it. Throw some rounds on it. Okay, yeah. throw some rounds on that one. How about this one over here? <laughs> they didn't have... I don't remember any aircraft overhead that day. Uh, that That is wild. Yep. So um, you've you've talked a lot about your combat experience. Um, I, I don't I don't necessarily want to reopen any old wounds, um, mm-hmm. and so I maybe just out of curiosity, could you kind of just list off some of the big offensives that you were you were a part of during your time there? Yeah, um, I guess I was in a lot. <laughs> um, so yeah, first first combat was um, Ashadati. Um, or Al Shadadi is what I don't know why it's asked because you know Arabic and Google Maps likes Arabic. Al Shadadi um, was my first offensive. That took us from that was February 18th to March 18th, um, and that included so looking at that map, we had to cross like several hundred kilometers of open desert basically to get to shoot from the Abdulaziz Mountains. And honestly, like, I gotta, like, just mention, like, just driving through the Abdulaziz Mountains, and, you know, there's old Crusader castles, um, it's where Saladin gathered his army to go fight, uh, the Crusader states, so, like, just some cool history there, um, and so we're just driving through it, and we get to this crest, and we crest the top, and my first view of active war was just like you get to the top and you can see everything. You can see hundreds of miles into the distance until like as far as the human eye can basically see. And it's just like, and you just see these old Canterbrain circles of Hiluxes driving around, like doing circles around villages and dropping troops off and shooting. You see fire from the airstrikes. It was honestly like beautiful in a way that I like, not to like romanticize war or anything, but it was like, holy fucking shit i mean like it's yeah like not not really a way to describe it um and i still didn't have a rifle (laughs) (laughs) oh my god despite constantly every every morning i would wake up and ask my you know like can i get a rifle now and um in in kurdish it's uh sibe uh means tomorrow um and the answer to everything that will be done is sibe can i get a rifle sibe are we going to go fight? Sibe. Are we going to go get food? Sibe. Oh. <laughs> um, that stresses me out to no end. Just I'm, I am still trying to picture not having a, a rifle. Yeah. And being in a, in, in a place where there is actively, you know, a, a war going on. Oh, my God. So yeah, so, so, we, so we get this panorama of warfare, and we drive down to the bottom of the mountain range, and they drop us off 
and they're like, all right, your unit is in that village um, 400 meters away. Uh, you're going to hop in the back of this Hilux and haul ass to it over dead ground because, um, you know, mines are everywhere. Uh, there's really, like, the first casualty I saw was uh, was one of the uh, Arab militias allied with us. He'd stepped on a mine, and his three friends were dragging his body back, like, as we're having this conversation. And I'm like, cool, can I get a gun, please? Oh, my God. And my Tabor commander turns to me, he's like, you didn't bring a gun? And I'm like, you didn't give me a gun! Um, and so, so thankfully it was just one of those, you know, an AK had just become available. So I got that. AK, yeah. And that's, that's how I got my AK. That, that is about as enemy at the gates esque as, as it's going to get, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, we, that's the AK. That's the AK that was not working. Is that correct? No, this one was. So at, when you're at the Academy, they don't give you any weapons that work. Um, that's okay. you're in training. And uh, that, that's a thing they do to, like, their own recruits, too. Like, that's not just... That's not a just, like, ah, oh, we don't trust the silly white people. Um, I mean, they shouldn't trust the silly white people. But it's also just, like, new recruits don't get working guns. You don't get access to ammo that you're going to fuck something up with. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's probably smart, you know, especially, especially the foreign recruits when, you know, some gung-ho yahoo from you know, internet leftist circles is like, I'm going to do a war. Yeah. And then they show up and they're like way out of their element. Yep. Um, so yeah, I, I was given a type 56. I um, under folder, AK milled. So like the youngest it could have been was like 1963 when the Chinese then switched, switched from milled to stamped production. Um, uh-huh. Gorgeous rifle. Loved it with all my heart. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, that, that's when I got my rifle. And then we hauled ass across this field, got in this village, met up with our unit. And we're like, cool, we're here to fight. And they're like, okay, sounds good. Um, and I looked across the street at the village across the street. I'm like, is that uh, held by us or ISIS? And they're like, ah, it's, it's held by us. And then, like, 30 seconds later, I see these little puffs of smoke. And I thought, my, my completely noob, untrained, non-combat experience ass, I remember audibly saying, Who's shooting flares at this time of day? And then the sound of the Katusha rockets came over, and they just like just impacted the ridge we were just at. They were shelling our staging point. Um. So like you know, very that was my greenhorn moment of like, oh, didn't even duck or anything. It was just like, oh, that's what Katusha rockets sound like. Yeah. You were just dumbfounded by the moment and had no idea how to respond. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, I'm like, oh, this this just happened. <laughs> and so my brain's like, yeah. hmm, what's going on here? And then then, then the second wave of Katusha rockets after that, I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get down now. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that was, and so then we, we blitzed towards the city, met very little opposition, um, got to the city, and I remember cresting the burn. We, we encircled the city. Um, and we're in these massive trench networks. And um, I remember, like, peeking over the, the top of the trench and just seeing, like, this massively fortified city. And Ashadot, you can look at it on a map. It's actually, like, a town. It's, it's a pretty small place. But, like, to me, it was just, like, this place is massive. And I was just convinced in my mind, like, if ISIS fights here, this is where I'm going to be for the next, like, three weeks of my life is how long it'll take us. And um, it ended up thankfully only being four days. 
they they only fought us for like two of those days, and that that was my first final fight um, with Shadati. And like my first, like we 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 took position in a school um, that was pretty close to the front lines, just on the north north end of the town. And ISIS had like these massive flags flying over everywhere. And we actually watched the first units storm their forward trenches just from the school. It's like, you know, you read about like the people watching the Battle of Bull Run. We were all like, everyone, like our commanders, we just crowded on this roof. Thank God there wasn't like an ISIS sniper at that particular moment. Um, and just watched the first part of the fight go off. And um, yeah, and then, then the next day, the next morning, a sniper did show up, shot one of the guys in our unit. Um, he's fine. Um, it was like a crack shot. It was at least 900 meters. Hit him square in the back, but thankfully impacted the radio that he had clipped onto the small of his back. Oh, wow. That depleted most of it. And so he was still injured, like he lost like function of his legs in that moment. And so we, had, we dragged him down, loaded him up, and it's like, goodbye, my friend. And then I found like two weeks later, and he had like full function, was just like on logistics truck duty because, you know, yeah. Like, sprint yet but like he was fine um and uh, it just like made everyone really angry they gave us a meal of boiled eggs and potatoes and then sent us off into the city and i got loaded up into an old humvee and i just remember so i, I was terrified going into my first fight but i wasn't terrified because of any of the reasons you might think i was terrified i didn't know how to open the door on a humvee oh you know that's that is actually a terrifying thing if you don't know how to do it and you're like too afraid to ask it's like i can't i can't ask because there's there's not a traditional (laughs) door handle inside of a humvee it's a giant lever and so i'm just sitting there staring at this lever mechanism being like do i pull up or down and i was just (laughs) terrified that we were gonna pull up like pull up under fire like some d-day shit and I wasn't going to know how to open the door. And someone would have to be like, God damn it, Gerdun. Uh, that was my Kurdish name. Um, I have to open the door and I'd be embarrassed. And that's what I was. Te- I was terrified about that. But so we finally do come to a stop, not under fire. And no Humvee door has ever been so open. I'm just like, fuck it. I'm pulling down. Pull down. Boom. No door has ever yep. been so open. Before. Yep. <laughs> just, just make sure you don't combat lock it. Because then you're never getting out of that thing. And no one's helping you out. Right. Hey. You're about to hear me speak about combat locking a Humvee, but I got the details incorrect in the conversation because uh, by this point I was pretty tipsy and so I mixed up the meaning of some of my words. Let me explain real quick. So on a Humvee door, there is a lever mechanism that you can push down or you can pull up. If I remember correctly, pulling it up will help you open the door. Pushing it down will combat lock it. When you combat lock a Humvee, the external door latch is no longer capable of opening the door. This can be useful because it means that there's no risk of the door getting opened by an enemy, and uh, it also helps to prevent the doors from vibrating open on rugged terrain. That is something that has happened to me before and was honestly pretty terrifying because my seatbelt was also fucked up. However, combat locking the door also means that in the event of an emergency where you are trapped inside of a Humvee, uh, no one else is going to be able to save you. You are the only person that can open that door. And uh, the only way that's getting open, if you're maybe unconscious or otherwise uh, 
not able to manipulate the door handle, someone else is going to have to climb in and reach across the Humvee and take care of it for you. It was just like not a, not a thing that had been covered yet. And I'm like, oh my God, how do I get out of a Humvee? Um, and then... <laughs> yeah. That's, Damn it, uh, look that, at this nerd. That is Not surprisingly not different from the U.S. military. My first time in a Humvee, uh, yeah. it was just in training, yeah, was- but we were like you know, doing some intense training and I go to open the Humvee and I'm like, yeah. I, I think um, I pulled so up yeah, we um, took the city like, How do I get out of two the days thing? of real fighting and, and then yeah. like two days of like, wait, is ISIS still here? Because <laughs> no, they, they pulled out yeah. after the second yeah. day. I was, I was like, took a, spent a full day being like, was terrible. they gotta oh, be around here somewhere. So <laughs> and then the fourth day we figured out, like, oh no, fuckers left. Um, I had a brief rest period, absolutely looted the fuck out of all of the ISIS uh, apartments. <laughs> um, they lived in a big apartment complex. Um, but yeah, that was, that was my first fight. I, uh, the, really, the language lessons at the academy um, were worth their weight in gold. I, I left the academy not thinking I had learned anything, then got to a unit nice. and be like, oh wait, I can like kind of understand. Like it was still very rough. Like I, I, knew, I knew enough that when it came time for my first fight, like the unit, they're not going to bring someone who they're not going to be able to communicate with. And so they're basically like, who, which of these silly white people are we going to take with us? Oh, Gerdun's fine. He understands if we say, you know, Cheta, Hatem, Rast, they mean, you know, ISIS is coming on the right kind of thing. So off I went, off I went to go kick in doors and stuff. Um, that, was, that was great. Totally convinced I was going to die. Was completely okay with it. Um, like yeah, my first firefight was honestly like the perfect first firefight to have. It was we held up on a rooftop. There was a courtyard. And it was like 200 meters wide at its widest point, and they were on the other side. And we just traded pot shots. Um, and I, I did see the guys who were shooting at me. That's not something that happens often, so that was a unique experience. Um, but like you know, quick in and out of a window, pop pop back in the window. And so I kind of, if anyone gets hit, it's kind of like on accident almost. Um, so it's like a very decent fight. Um, but we actually kind of lost that day. They ended up counterattacking in the evening and pushed us further back than where we had started. And I didn't, my position stayed the same. So I didn't notice that until all of a sudden the compound across the um, courtyard from us got airstruck, like out of nowhere. Boom. Um, and it was gorgeous. I mean, they, it hit something that could, like, airstrike. There's there's no big ball of fire. Um, it's not even black smoke. It's always, like, gray smoke. But for whatever reason, these first ones, it was, like, this deep black cloud. They must have hit a wow. truck or something that caught on fire. Um, that just, like, billowed into this, like, sunset night. So it turns purple. And there was this dash PKM gunner across the courtyard who had just not stopped firing for, like, the last two hours. Like, I don't know how what his barrel was like, but he just kept jumping. Like, two hours, and he just, like, fuck it, three airstrikes on my position? I don't give a fuck. And so he's just still mag dumping through the smoke and the clouds. And it was like, I was next to a Canadian guy, and the airstrike happened, and we just both, like, jaw dropped, looked at it. 
And he's like, holy <laughs> shit. And all I said was like, yeah. <laughs> and that's all. Um, and so at that point, I'm like, wait a second. Wasn't that our position like an hour ago? <laughs> um, so then Nightfall happened. Um, and that, that's when Dash pulled back. Basically, they counterattacked, pushed us back a bit, got us on the defensive, and then must have pulled out of the city after that. But we didn't know that. So then night happened, and I got attached to a unit that had suffered a casualty earlier. Um, so they were down a man, so I got attached to it. And we pushed forward, and they sent me, you know, a silly white guy from Utah, and a Kurdish woman named Sema. Um, she was my first combat buddy, was a Yepage woman named Sema. And they're like, all right, you two, go clear, like, go off, go off into the night um, and, and clear the way. And uh, we did. And it was like, I think that really speaks a lot to, like, the the commitment to the YPG and the YPJ to, like, the ideals they fight for. That they're like, I'm willing to just, like, send a silly international guy who would come to fight with them. They're like, sure. And, off, and you know, my first combat buddy was a woman. Um, that's, like, that's everything you... Everything you think about the Yepa game, the YPG, um, I, I got, like, in my first fight. And I remember we got up to our first door. We went up to this building that, like, three hours ago I had seen ISIS guys shooting out of. We get up to the door, and Sema is, like, five foot tops. And I'm six foot two. Uh, and so she looks at me, and she's, like, kicking the door. And I'm just like, wait, what? Um, because, like, I know, like, I again, I'm not a Western military veteran or anything. I'm not super hardcore and clearing buildings and stuff. But I'm, like, I'm pretty sure you don't kick in the door if you can avoid it. But it's like, wait, we have nothing else. We don't have a hammer to hammer open. <laughs> like, we have no way to get into this house. And also, like, every house in the goddamn Middle East has bars over its window. So it's like you can break the window and easily climb in. I like kick in the door. And, like, the last piece of news media I had read before this offensive was about the Iraqi army uh, clearing, oh, it wasn't Fallujah, it was um, Ramadi. The mm. Battle of Ramadi had just happened in Iraq, and there was a BBC article that, like, the first paragraph is, like, we sit there staring across the compound, not moving, because our interpreter tells us there's 1,500 explosive devices around this compound. And, like, that, that's the general consensus. Like, you get there and all the veterans are like, oh, yeah, ISIS mines everything. And so, like, she's, like, kick, kick in the door. And I'm like, oh, God damn it, Sema. Of course they mined the door. <laughs> and so just, like, the very visual image flash in my head, like, I'm going to kick open the door and my leg's going to blow off and I'm going to die. And in that moment... I was completely okay with that. That like that was like my moment where it was literally just a split second, and it's like this is what I came here to do. Um, the the time to um, whoop out was at the airport in the United States. This is what I came here to do. Um, this is what I want to do, and I was completely at peace. Kicked open that door, fully expecting to die, and they didn't mind that door. And I kicked in probably about 50 more doors that night, cleared about 50 more buildings, just me and Sema. And they didn't mine any of them, thankfully. And I did not die. But um, so that, that is how I know I am, in fact, very comfortable. Like, I am comfortable with dying. I am okay with dying. Because, like, I've been in a situation like, oh, yeah, I'm going to die. And I just happened to not because they fucked up, um, basically. 
Um, so yeah, that was that was my first fight. Um, wow. Pretty pretty chill, honestly. Um, like coming out of it, I had seen more combat than like ninety five percent of U.S. infantry, so I got like a little one up card on that. I know that because I have like several veterans who were there. I'm like, yeah. yeah, this is more combat than most people see over a like five year stint in the army or something. Um, <laughs> yeah oh absolutely i mean most most people in the u.s army they'll deploy every oh i'm probably gonna mess this number up but it's like every two years or three years yeah. in the active army uh the reserves have like a four-year it's called the dwell cycle so like uh i think the reserves have like a four-year cycle the national guard has a five-year cycle and um if you switch units, you might still get sent sooner than <laughs> your like full dwell time. But, but yeah, in, in, so in the national guard specifically, you'll go every five years. So like I enlisted into the garden, um, mm -hmm. 2009, my unit was in Kuwait yeah, and I, I got out of infantry school and they were still overseas, um, running convoy escorts in and out of Iraq. <laughs> and, yeah. um, so I yep. missed that deployment, and the next deployment um, didn't come until five years later. Yeah, so so Shadati happened. That was, just, um, that was my experience. Yes, like, important to tell, I feel like but, it's um, important to tell the story. Of, of course, there are people that like, you know feelings get the really rush through. Situation we took the city. One unit we then the most combat since World to War the West of it, um, and because we actually had uh, feared yeah. the base of the Abdulaziz Mountains. Again, we had just kind of like punched this line. Let's create to our objective and circle that, fought for that, and we still had all these ISIS hypothetically behind us. So I then spent the next, like, until March 18th, we spent the rest of that month um, driving through the flattest of desert, um, just clearing villages, um, seeing very little action. Um, most of these times when you read about, like, mm -hmm. the YPG encircled ISIS, they didn't. They moved to, like, any ISIS who were still there were, like, locals who were like, I'm not going to leave my house kind of deal. Um, they, they had plenty of time to pull out. Um, so very little fighting. There, there was some. In fact, there's a documentary called The Road to Raqqa by Sky News um, where you, they, you see a clip of me being a total dweeb. I had, like, some cheesy beret I had just looted that morning, like, on my head. I haven't had a haircut in three months, so my hair's wild. And it's upsetting because, like, I talked to these guys for, like, five minutes, like, what, what caused you to come here, yada, yada, because they're British, and so they say like this. What caused you to come fight? I said, I give, like, this pretty, I felt pretty good. I'm a journalist. I know what journalists <laughs> want to hear, yada, yada. How to, like, make good sound bites for, for media consumption, because they're not going to print a three-hour interview. Um, and... And I ended it with, like, and, you know, at the end of the day, I didn't want to just be someone on Facebook commenting about all these things when I could come do something. And that's like, and I just seem like a total goober when I, when it's just that moment and that's the one they show. <laughs> um, but then you, and then, yeah, like that crew happened to be with us when we started taking some SBG fire in one of those village. And we ended up, um, they don't have trench warfare so much as warfare over there. Um, you dig your berm. ISIS has their berm. You sit there and you stare at each other. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I ended up just on this berm in the middle of nowhere, getting Katusha rocketed every morning at 8 a.m. You know, sun comes up because it's still winter. The sun comes up kind of late, around 7.20. 
Everyone wakes up, including Isis, Dash. Make your pot of chai. Drink your chai. What time is it? Eight o'clock? All right. Allah wills that the Katusha rockets will come now. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, we're like, yeah, we're like on the clock. It's like, oh, eight o'clock. Cool. Um, yeah, basically, I mean, it wasn't personal. It was just like, yeah, what, what are you going to do? Um, so that happened, yeah, and then uh, we uh, declared, so yeah, we, least, we took a lot of territory, took a lot of ground, didn't end up having too much fighting. Um, I think in the actual Good like, morning, city here's some Chicago, rockets. we only had six killed, um, a bit more wounded, but only, I believe, six killed. Um, a, few, a few more dozen in the ensuing month of village fighting and stuff, um, mostly from mines. Um, but the Humvee I was in did did get blown up when I got out of it. Uh, it did get blown up by a tow missile, so that was a thing. Um, everyone was fine. Everyone was out of it at the time. They just ripped it in the wrong spot, I guess. And it was like, ISIS actually, you can, it's gone now, but you could watch, ISIS published the video of that happening. And yeah, it was like a three kilometer shot that they took. So like, you know, we had no idea the rocket was even coming wow. until it hit, so. Because, <laughs> um, um, so yeah, that happened. I pulled back. Yeah. Um, my next deployment was to a city called Saluk, um, which is west, far west. S-U-L-U-K, if you want to like try to look it up on a map, if you want to follow wow. around. Um, the, the story goes that Turkey had led a bunch of ISIS through their border to attack that city from the rear. Um I, I honestly can't confirm whether or not that was the case, but I kind of believe it because Luke was pretty far from the front at that time. At the time, the, the front line was closer to Ainisa. Um, and so, yeah, they, they attacked, killed like 40 Epigay, um, so more than we had lost like this massive offensive where like 2,000 troops were involved and we conquered, you know, hundreds of square kilometers, thousands, I think, of square kilometers of ground. And then lost like 40 guys in one night in an attack in Saluk. So we got sent there um, as reinforcements, but the fighting had died down. That was just like going out every night and doing um, ambush positions, basically like, like setting up to ambush anyone coming to attack us, basically. But realistically, it's just like going to your defensive positions. Um, it's called Kameen, Um and it's like Anyone who was there in like 2015, 2016, I think going on Kameen was like a, a rite of passage. Um, so that happened. Um, that would have been end of March. Then April was pretty chill until April 22nd is when I went and fought the regime in Kamichlo. Uh, the, the 22nd of the month, I, I got shot at like every 22nd of the month I was there, except two, <laughs> except like January 22nd. And May twenty second were the only twenty seconds of a month that I that I didn't get shot at. So that's my unlucky number, I guess.
So salute happens, nothing, no, no combat there, just listening to the Turks bomb the fuck out of their own towns north of it. Um, that was that was end of March into April of 2016. Um, then I went and fought the regime um, in the 22nd and uh, 23rd of April of 2016, that was in And then nothing for May. Um, we were all just kind of waiting around for Man Beach to happen. And Man Beach was, was the big operation. So when I was there, um, Rojava was three cantons, is how they had it set up. You had uh, Jazeera Canton in the northeast, Kobani Canton in like the central north, and then there was uh, Afrin Canton, um, which is in the northwest. And um, at the start of the war, these were all separate territories. There was no actual land border. So it's all governed by the PYD. The, the Yepige is the armed force for all of them, but they were not actually connected to each other. Um, and so the, the biggest goal of Rojava, especially once they started getting U.S. air support, was to connect the cantons. And so they, they connected Kobani and Jazeera Canton in 2015. Um, and then so 2016, we all knew where we were going. We all knew eventually we were going to cross the Euphrates. We were going to attack Man Beach and Al-Bab and connect to Afrin Canton. And that, that was like the goal, was to connect the cantons, have a strong, solidified northern border uh, for the Rojava Revolution. And so we all knew we were going to Man Beach, and we all knew it was going to be a hell of a fight, because that was the ISIS's, or Daesh's, main supply line to the outside world. Uh, that was their open border with Turkey was there. That's where they were getting... There was a French intelligence report that estimated up until like the day we conquered the city about 300 foreign volunteers were still coming through that corridor every week. Um, wow. But let alone all, like, you know, soft goods, like, you know, Pepsi and fucking Snickers bars were all coming through that corridor, um, let alone, like, ammunition and stuff like that they were getting from the Turks. Um, so we all knew it was going to happen. And so May is just, like, sitting around in the village of Tel Nasser, just south of Tel Tamer. It was a, uh, a Syrian village um, that most people have probably seen a photo of. There was a big Assyrian church that ISIS dynamited when they uh, pulled out of the city or pulled out of the town. Um, and so that was my that was my barracks, you know, sitting there, chilling with my friends, eating mulberries, eating food, bitching about it being hot. <laughs> Being bored, like I, you know, ninety-eight percent of it is just being bored out of your fucking mind. Um, and the right. YPG doesn't really do training, and that's a huge criticism I have of them then, and still kind of have of them now, is that they really wasted a lot of time that could have been spent on training um, and basic, like small unit tactics. So they just didn't. And the the excuse is like, oh, we didn't have the time, we didn't have the resources. But it's like I know that's bullshit because I was there, and like we had nothing but time. Um, and then, so that, that a lot of people died who didn't need to die. A lot of stupid attacks were made that didn't need to happen. Um, they had ample, let, aside from all the volunteers who were there and more than willing to like impart knowledge of like Western small unit tactics, there was also the physical U.S. military. There were units, um, the anti-terror forces, um, Yacht, Yakinian anti-terror. Um, who were U.S. trained and did exist. There just wasn't much of a emphasis on passing that training down the line to your average 
uh, soldier, basically. Right. Um, and so I, I think that's a, a critique that needs to be made um, and, like, deserves to be made. Because, um, yeah, we spent, you know, all of most of April and all of May just sitting around doing nothing. Um, we had, like, one day of live fire training in that entire two-month period. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, just, just because, just cause lots of ideology training, not a lot of practical training. Um, so finally, um, end of May, beginning of June, we, we crossed the Euphrates river in a series of, uh, boat lifts by U S special forces and, uh, army Corps of engineers was there to help us rebuild a bridge that had been blown up along the M4 highway that crossed. We dropped that, and then the Battle of Man Beach happened, and that was a fucking meat grinder. And I highly recommend anyone who's interested watch the documentary The Volunteers. Um, that can be found for free on Amazon, YouTube, and maybe Vimo. Um, but for sure on YouTube, you, unless it's been taken down, like you can find it for free on there and Amazon Prime. Um, that is shot by a uh, river um, who was a documentarian there documenting the experiences of a western medical unit that I guess that were trying to be combat medics in the Yepigay because that wasn't a thing the Yepigay had um, and yeah really good documentary highly recommend it to anyone um, lots of trigger warnings you're, you're going to see a lot of you're going to see kids die um, in that documentary, it's pretty brutal um, because it was an absolutely brutal fight, and that's where the term the man, they actually coined the term "man beach meat grinder," and it was that was like seventy four days of just straight combat, like units went into that city and just disappeared. Um, like when my when my unit finally like we took we my unit's um, job was crossing the river and then cutting the highway, cutting Highway two sixteen that runs from Jarablus into Man Beach. So my unit cut that, and then we spent like the next month like slowly pushing and eventually stalling out, trying to push into the city from the north, and we just like got trench warfare, basically. Just like you try to move and are just met with a massive gunfire. And for whatever reason, there was like this five-day period where our front just didn't receive any air support. So it's like, yeah, we're sending like groups of six guys to try to get advance and just getting lit up by like 40 ice dash guys in this street. Wow. Um and eventually, like, finally, the day ISIS decided to counterattack us, like, out of nowhere, the U.S., you know, the air support shows up and instantly carpet bombs them the moment they leave their trench line, because fuck those guys. But it's like, well, where was that the last five days? Um, and so, yeah, then it just settled into a good old-fashioned grinding urban combat um, that the Yepigay was kind of unprepared for. Um, at the at the time, this was before Mosul had happened, and the uh, coalition spokesman actually said that Manbij was the most intense fight they had had against the Islamic State up until that point. And obviously that was surpassed by Mosul. I don't think speaking to people who were in Raqqa, including people who were in Manbij and in Raqqa, I don't think Raqqa was as bad as Manbij in certain aspects. Um... If for one thing, we, did, we didn't carpet bomb Man Beach. We left the city mostly intact. There, we did airstrike 
buildings um, within the city, but not not on the carpet bombing scale that happened in Mosul and in Raqqa. Um, not not even close. Um, and yeah, like eventually my unit got sent into the city proper, and like my unit went in with fifty four people, and after only. I think we were in the city itself for nine days. Of that 54, we had 16 dead and 22 wounded. And um, wow. and we got off lucky. I mean, there, there were units of, you know, 30, 40 people who were completely wiped out. Um, very high casualty rates. Um, that had the highest death rate of foreign volunteers, um, especially of foreign volunteers who actually went into the city. I think we had like an 80% casualty rate. Um, not all those are deaths, obviously that includes wounded, but like not very, maybe like 20 to 24 international volunteers, um, from the West. Um, it's poor, I guess I should clarify, um, the Yethege was always an international force. Um, there were always hundreds of Turks, Iranians, um, Arabs, um, people from Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan. Um, who had joined. And so there's a lot of emphasis placed on like the foreign volunteers. And to an extent that only that's really just talking about the Western volunteers. There there are hundreds, if not thousands, of international volunteers. And that's that's not even including like obviously you have Kurds. And so if you're in a unit out of 10 Kurds, eight of them are going to be from Turkey. One of them's going to be from Syria. And the other one is a 50-50 toss-up of he's from Iraqi Kurdistan or Iranian Kurdistan, Bashar or Rojava. Um, and again, that's that's not even including, like, when I was there, the Yepige itself was probably about 40% local Arab members. The first person I met in my unit when I got to the front line was a uh, Arab from Damascus named uh, Haval Militan. Absolutely great guy. Um, lost his legs in Man Beach. Um, and so, so, yeah, but amongst, like, the the Western volunteers, that was our bloodiest battle. Um, I was there for most of the casualties um, amongst the Westerners. They were in my unit, in my squad when it happened. Um, yeah, I have hand tattoos of uh, the, or Jawan Farat. That is for Jordan McTaggart, an uh, anarchist from Colorado who, who died. Um, he was my best friend, and he died there. Um, and he had born dead tattooed on his knuckles. And I highly recommend anyone who's listening to this, look up the, uh, just Google born dead Syria, and you'll have a very good news article about his first tour in 2015, um, where he got shot in the leg, um, attacking a village, and left in a field overnight. Um, and he had to crawl back to his own lines in the morning. And just like his absolute dedication to the revolution. Um, Damn. And yeah, I mean, like, not so. Not a lot of us went. Like, really, the numbers are out there of how many Westerners volunteered. And it's, you'll hear anywhere from just a few hundred to a little over a thousand. And I don't think everyone's anyone's really gonna know. I don't think that information's ever gonna become public. But like, those of us who went, amongst the leftists especially, were really just like really committed and diehard. Or we we weren't just fucking tourists. Um, like. Our our blood has fed the sand. Yeah. And so, yeah, we we eventually won. I guess I don't even feel like we won Man Beach. Eventually we stalemated. Um, 
They were held up in the industrial section of the city and just massacring every attack we sent at them. So eventually they just were able to, you know, it was kind of a, a, a medieval siege. And it ended like a lot of medieval sieges do, where ISIS was able to leave the city with their weapons and everything. You know, they just drove out in a big convoy. Um, and I'm still jaded and bitter about that, not going to lie. Fuck all of them. Um, um, yeah, yeah, and then that. I agree. Fuck ISIS. Yeah, fuck those guys, right? I mean, they fuck most of them are dead now. But yeah, and so then after that, like the immediate turnaround, um, I was wounded in the Battle of Man Beach. Um, I was shot in the arm a couple times, um, but I just I just stayed on the front lines. Um, you know, didn't have time for that. Didn't have time to be wounded. I guess um, <laughs> didn't want to leave my friends basically. Um, yeah. And so immediately after Manbij, we pushed for Gerobolis, um, which is just north on the Turkish border. And that, that was the last like official border crossing that ISIS controlled. So it would have been symbolic for us to take it. Um, but during the entire 74-day period of the fighting, also, I'm going to go ahead and say it, anyone who looks up the Battle of Manbij will see some bullshit casualty figure listed by the Yepigay. I think they only said we lost like 200 people. Um, I actually think ISIS's claim, casualty claim, is probably closer. Um, they say 1,600 killed. If Because every no one gets wounded in any casualty figures. For whatever reason, it's like, no, we killed everyone who was hit. And when realistically, like, 20% of people died, most are wounded. Um, 1,600 is probably pretty accurate for killed and wounded for the entire attack. Out of a fourth, it was maybe 3,000 of us. Like, maybe. So a pretty substantial casualty uh, rates uh, left us pretty depleted at the time. Um, and um, so, yeah, we, we went to Drobolis, um off, off the river, went, had some fights with ISIS. I got wounded again. I got fragged, ate most of a RGD-5 grenade. Uh, it's okay. I'm fine. Um, but I had to, actually had to go to the hospital for that one. It, it broke my wrist when it happened. Um, and we just had to like keep fighting them off with a broken rift, and I was chucking grenades back at them, but I couldn't pull the pin with my left hand because it was broken. So I would just like limply hold the grenade in my left hand, pull it with my right, and then very quickly before it detonated, like grab it with my right hand and throw it back at them. <laughs> oh god, that's so stressful. <laughs> yeah, I guess I had, I had other I, things. I don't know. I was I was fine with it. Um, Again, another one of those moments like, oh, I'm going to die here. That's right, I guess. Yeah, it, in, in the heat of the moment, it's like, yeah, whatever. This is what I've got to do. I, but um, I, so, yeah, and oh. so, yeah, the, the, that, that, the next morning after that fight was when the Turks started dropping artillery on us. Because at that point, I guess the entire 74 days, and again, the, the entire Manbij operation received very little news coverage. Um, I think there's like one BBC reporter who was able to do a report of the battle in like end of July of 2016. Um, and that's kind of it. And then there was a bit of foot, there was some more journalists appeared after we liberated the city. But that's because Turkey was applying, applying immense amounts of pressure for us to not even be doing the entire offensive. Um, because obviously our goal was to connect the cantons. And if we had reached Afrin, if we had gone from Man Beach and we had then taken Al Bab and reached Afrin Canton, we, the entire northern border, basically, would have been 
PYD, which to the Turks is the PKK. And so they, they were absolutely horrified. And that's why they supported ISIS. Like they, they would rather support these genocidal dark age fuckwits than contemplate having like a democratically autonomous coalition of villages living on their northern border because it's um so that's why they supported isis and when we were pushing on Jarablus, it was clear that isis was no longer going to be able to contain us i don't think that would have been true we were in no condition to push on the al-bab it probably would have been several months of rest before we were able to do that and considering mm-hmm. the start of a time the turks like the turks got their asses kicked by isis and al-bab uh, like there, there's pictures of ISIS fighters sitting next to like three destroyed leopard tanks <laughs> in the snow. <laughs> um, so I don't even think we would have like, especially after Man Beach. I don't think we were in quite a condition to do that. But it scared the Turks enough that they're like, "Well, we're going in now." And uh, so that was Operation Euphrates Shield began, like fuck it, August 18th, I think, sometime around there. I believe I was fragged on like the 16th morning of the 17th woke up to Turkish artillery and like two days after that they crossed the border and drove us back from we had gotten pretty close we'd gotten to the outskirts of Jarablus and they drove us back to the river um that separates Man Beach and Jarablus basically and um yeah I mean forever fuck Joe Biden I remember like sitting in the hospital in Kobani just like packed like absolutely packed with victims and wounded men from men and women from the Man Beach operation. Um, very little proper medical supply in terms of like painkillers. So you're just having people with like third degree burns because their BMP got hit by an RPG and they burned. Um, just screaming. And on the news is Joe Biden sitting in Ankara talking to the addressing the Turkish public and being like the, the YPG has no right to be west of the Euphrates, and we will immediately demand. They return. It's like you know, fuck you forever, Joe. Fuck you forever. Um. So, so that's when I knew I was never going to vote for Joe Biden. I was still like slightly, I don't know. I was baby enough to be like, you know, electoral politics makes sense in the U.S. Um. But you know, in that moment, it's like, well, fuck Joe Biden forever. Um. And so yeah, they they crossed the border and they they did fight ISIS. You'll a lot of it's a common like I don't know, it's a propaganda thing amongst. Yepigay and a lot of those like Turkey is a, like ISIS fighters just walked over and joined Turkey. That's not really what happened. They they were frenemies before. They had a common enemy in the YPG. They they accepted each other, but at the end of the day, Turkey is the antithesis to the Islamic State. The Islamic State's an antithesis to like a Turkish nation state. Because if nothing else, Daesh is very internet, very pro multiculture. Like if nothing else. As long as that culture is Sharia, it's fine. You can be anyone. Whereas Turkey's like, only Turks. Um, so, so they did fight. They, they absolutely fought. A lot of Turkish soldiers were killed um, fighting ISIS and al-Bab. And uh, fuck all of them. And fuck all the ISIS guys they killed. But they did. That, that, was the, that was the end of the dream for connecting the cantons. They took al-Bab, that forever separated us from ever reaching Afrin and allowed Afrin to be isolated and eventually conquered and ethnically cleansed in 2018 by the Turks. Um, and then, yeah, then the rest of it, the the invasion of Rojav that people remember happened in 2019. And so basically the Turks invaded Operation Euphrates Spring. 
And I guess to the Obama administration's credit, I guess, I don't want to give them any, but they did put U.S. soldiers on the front line after like two days of fighting to like calm things down. And that's when the uh, the process of having U.S. patrols drive the border every day to, to deter the Turks from being able to cross um, happened. Um, and then Trump stopped that in 2019. They invaded the Turkish military, invaded up to Tel Tamer. Tel Tamer, where I stayed at, is now the front line. Um, basically, between the towns of Tel Aviv and um, Ras Alain um, is where the uh, the Turkish army now occupies, down to the M4 highway. Um, so they don't occupy all of Rojava. Most of Rojava, even, is still there. But they did manage to ethnically cleanse a quarter of a million people, because fuck it, why not? And we just let that happen, as we do, as we do. And uh, yeah, so um, but yeah, after Man Beach, after Jerobolis, after basically the Turks uh, cock blocking us from connecting the cantons, that I think that was a big blow to my morale. I obviously like lost a lot of friends. Um, I was wounded and um, just tired. And people are always like, "Well, why did you leave?" And it's like, "Have you you go fight a fucking war for ten months and tell me, ask me why did you leave?" I guess. Um. And yeah, I was I was just tired. So Yeah, I after everything that you've just described to me, I I don't think that any reasonable person could fault you for you know, c- coming to the conclusion that it is time to at least get some R&R or something after that much fighting. Yeah, I stayed I stayed longer than I should. Like I should have left after I got wounded in August, I didn't actually end up leaving till um, October of 2016. Is when I finally, I finally admitted to myself. I was just sitting on guard duty, and I was just angry the whole time. And I was just like, us. I was just an asshole, basically. Like I was with a, again, my old, my other unit was basically gone, so I was dropped off at a new unit. And everyone there, they were all Kurds, but they only sp- spoke uh, Turkish. They hadn't learned Kurdish yet because, you know, their language is illegal where they were born. Um, right. So I couldn't really communicate with them. And I was just like a snappy asshole. And I just remember sitting up on guard duty and going, oh, wait, I'm kind of a liability right now, aren't I? <laughs> and like accepting to myself, like, fucking fine. I'll go rest. And I honestly, I tried to just go do stuff in the civil side of Rojava. Like, I, I really did not want to leave. Um, I wanted to just just do something in the civilian side because it was really like the things that grounded me throughout my time in Rojava were the interactions I got to have with the civilian populace. Um, and not to be like sappy or anything, but it really like that's what you're fighting for. And that was always like my stance. My stance is like the, the revolution is not fighting. Like everyone fights. Fighting is not an inherently revolutionary act. It is what you do. It's what you're fighting for and what you do with the results of that fighting. And that is civil side. And like I just remember like me and my buddy Jawan were just like sitting next to a shop in Tel Tamer. We were sitting in the car. Um and our security guy popped out to go buy some candy at the store. So we're just sitting in this car. This old Kurdish guy must have just heard me and Jawan, you know, two tall white guys speaking Kurdish. And he just like came over, opened the door of the car. Um, because you know, security culture. What is that? Um, <laughs> He just like hugged us and was like just crying and just kept saying thank you and like you know just you know kiss on the cheek and stuff. I was just saying thank you because like this you know 60, 70 year old Kurdish guy has spent his entire life under oppression 
and then just sees two silly white people from across the world, you know, here to fight and die and speaking his language. And that was clearly just a very powerful thing to him. And that's probably one of my favorite memories. Um, obviously, you know, like, like you can't describe the feeling when you like, like when you liberate a village and it has young girls in it, girls who are like, you know, nine and 10 and basically their entire cognizant memory. Most of these areas would have been under ISIS control since 2013. So, so three years of their life had been spent with their mom not being able to leave the house unless she had a man with her. Um, of her mom not being able to show her hands in public. Like, if you don't wear gloves, they will, you know, worst case scenario, they will kill you. Best case scenario is they're going to whip you. Like, from mm-hmm. wearing gloves. One of the first civilians I ever met, like, at, on the Shadati, that first village we were dropped off in where we got Katusha fired, there was an old guy missing four fingers on his right hand, so he just had his thumb and was smoking a cigarette holding it between the stump of his hand and his thumb. It's like, what happened? He's like, I really like to smoke. And every time ISIS had caught him smoking, they would cut off, they cut off his two, his middle and index finger first. And then he started using his pinky and his other finger to smoke. So they cut those off. And there he was still just puffing away with his little stump of a hand and uh, his thumb. It's like, fuck yeah. If nothing else, if nothing else, hundreds of 12 year olds are able to chart, start chain smoking themselves into an early grave. And if that's <laughs> not worth fighting for, I don't know what is. Yeah, like, there, yeah, there's nothing else worth fighting for other than allowing those kids to just get that pack of Marlboro just, lights and menthols and whatever else. And yeah, that was the first because you know ISIS forbids smoking, so you drive through with the first thing everyone asks you, every single fucking person is, "Do you have cigarettes?" <laughs> So yeah, I, I would just carry a card and like just toss them to people as we yeah. fly. Yeah, that's that's what you have to do. That you know, you'd be an asshole if you didn't yeah, toss right? them that, the the tool the tools of killing themselves, which is better than getting killed by other people. Like at least you have agency there. That ten year old has every right to chain smoke, as far as I'm concerned, and I will fight anyone who says otherwise. That's the end of part one of my discussion with Freeman Stevenson about his experiences as a volunteer with the Kurdish YPG. Stay tuned for part two. I am going to wrap up this episode with the full song from the introduction. The title of the song is On a Cold Night in Syria, written and performed by Lee Brickley. Take care. These are some songs for the revolution.
old night in Syria There's angels watching over them With rifles in their hands The protectors of the people Every woman and man And if you've ever fought for freedom Then with them you must stand Where the martyrs die On a cold night in Syria There's children crying in the streets Cause mom and dad have died This war machine's in industry Raw turn and siren side And there'll be snipers on the rooftops And bodies on the ground When the sun goes down So spare a thought, shed a tear, do everything you can Their villages are battlefields, their cities overrun And there'll be fighter jets raining down, hellfire in the sand In Kurdistan oh.